This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers, adult language, and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. of Rare Antiquities, Episode 8. Even though we just missed the seasonal date, we will review, analyze, and compare John Carpenter's Halloween to Rob Zombie's Halloween remake on today's show. So grab a handful of leftover Halloween candy, sip that rotting pumpkin beside you, and turn off the lights as we compare these two interpretations of what most people consider was the start of the modern horror slasher genre. I'm your host, Harry. I am your co-host, Jeff. So, Jeff, before we get moving into the actual podcast, just this little segue, I wanted to ask what you did for Halloween this year. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I um, You don't remember? <laughs> it's actually funny you say, because I did have to be reminded of a few events, but Noah didn't do too much Halloween-themed. The girlfriend and I went to a friend's house, got together with a couple of friends, had some, had much adult beverage, couple a few Halloween candies and and that was pretty much it you know I I remember answering the door at my friend's house and throwing some Halloween candy at a couple of kids uh, <laughs> angrily like at their head not in the bag because that's oh that's your typical yeah. that's how you usually answer yeah. the door anyways that's how I usually answer the door on a regular afternoon uh, and that's pretty much it man what, what about you yeah I got to together with the usual group uh, on the Friday we did watch one movie which was pretty terrible it's funny, it was actually a Donald Pleasance movie. I forget what it's called, but it's about like, I think it's even a John Carpenter movie as well. It's about like, you know, Satan's return and he's locked up in a church and there's kind of like, there's these demonic cult followers outside and it's pretty shitty. <laughs> it's not very good at all. Well, I, I'm sorry you had a shitty night. Well, that was the Friday and then the Saturday, which was Halloween. Then we, then we went out and, um... Went to a pub. It was a Halloween-themed night, and everyone was dressed up. So, yeah, I just got drunk, and that was good. Then, yeah, just went back and drank <laughs> with, with the group. It's funny, Halloween's kind of the only holiday there is that has such a significant change from when you're a kid to when you're an adult. You know, like you're a kid, it's fun. You get a costume, you go and you get a bunch of candy, and you check everything for razor blades and poison and shit, and then... Then you you're looking for the razor blades and poison and shit. Yeah, and then but when you're older, like when you're us, then it's all about, well, I'm gonna go to a pub and I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna get fucking hammered. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean I, I still did. Uh, I still stayed behind. I actually had a record number of because it was such a warm ha- Halloween night. I stayed behind to tr- give out candy before I went to the went trick or treating with my kids because my wife took them to another place uh, near her parents' house, and we probably had about a hundred hundred kids show up. Close wow. to a hundred, yeah, because I had a hundred pieces of candy, a little bit more, and I got rid of almost all of it. So, wow, yeah, so it was it was pretty hectic and it was amazing. So it was good to see because the previous years were pretty flat, not a lot of people. Yeah, I definitely just turn my lights off if I'm home. Yeah, I know that's you so, for you. Yeah, yeah, that's we I, yeah. I, I, we have to live in a society, Jeff. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's it's funny. You'd think differently of each of us, I think, if you knew us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm just putting on a front for the for the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get into this sucker. So just going talking about the movie on a high level, Jeff, I just wanted to know, did you have any preconceived ideas of what these movies were about? And did you have any memories? I know you said you hadn't watched them before. 
But like, you know, every Halloween, uh, John Carpenter's, at least John Carpenter's Halloween is always shown on TV. And I always catch like maybe 10, 20, 30 minutes of it every Halloween. Because it, you know, how it's like, you know, Fright Night every day leading up yeah. to the date. So did you ever catch pieces of it? Or did you have any memories of this or, or any ideas, preconceived ideas of what this was about? No, uh, not really. I'd never seen probably a single frame of either of these, I mean, outside of, you know, maybe a photo here and there, but no, never watched any minute of it, never came across it on TV ever once. You know, I was aware of, uh, I was aware of both films. You know, I understand, you know, Michael Myers, the guy in the mask and, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, sort of the breakout role for her. So I was aware of those things, but as far as plot or anything visual ed i mean the theme song's pretty uh the theme music's pretty iconic so i i'd heard that obviously but uh outside of that no this this is pretty pretty fresh for me this time okay okay and then i just want to point out did you actually follow through with watching rob zombie's version first and then john carpenter's yeah i did i watched the uh the rob zombie remake first on the one day and then the day after i watched the john carpenter version so that was that was pretty interesting. Yeah. I want to be curious. It's like almost saying I watched the prequels first and then I watched the original trilogy, Star Wars. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see how that impacts your viewing, if at all. It'll be, you know, we can get into that. So today, just what we'll do, Jeff, I think after thinking about it, I still think we're just going to thoroughly review John Carpenter's Halloween first. And then we'll touch on, we're not going to go through a thorough review of Rob Zombie's Halloween. We'll just point out what the differences are. Do you have anything for me, or do you want me to get right into a plot synopsis for John Carpenter's Halloween? Well, I'd be curious to to ask you about, you know, I, I know we kind of reminisce sometimes before we get into it, so why don't you tell us what your initial memories are of uh, either the Carpenter version or the, the zombie or both, and, uh, you know, what your experiences were when you first uh, saw the film. Okay, so while I was young, I had a couple of friends in grade school, like later grade school, uh, not like kindergarten, but in the later years. And they came over a couple times for, you know, uh, late nights and stuff like that. And, you know, we'd rent a couple of horror movies, like sometimes it'd be Friday the 13th or other things like Sleepaway Camp, you know, all, all these good classics. But once we did rent Halloween 2, not the original Halloween and I didn't get a chance to watch that with my friends. So another night, I was just late at night, staying up late, and I popped it in myself. And I had a real creepy basement. My parents had a bungalow when I was growing up, and it was a real dark and gloomy basement. And I sat myself in front of a TV watching this thing, and it just freaked the shit out of me. Like this listening to the opening music, and yeah. Halloween 2's opening is somewhat similar to this one. I got so scared just from the music and the mood setting right away that I stopped watching. I couldn't watch it with the oh. lights off and by myself. So that was my first memory. Oh, yeah. So, cool. yeah. And then later on, like as I got into junior high and I met some other friends that you know, we, yeah, we used to watch horror movies. So Halloween was always a staple. We'd rent the sequels and eventually saw the first one. And, and it's just been something that's been with me throughout my life. So the part of my childhood. Right on. All right. You want me to get right into it then? Let's do this thing. Okay. So enter Michael Myers, a boy who seems to have gone trick-or-treating and then wanders home, stalking his own house. Through Michael's point of view, we discover that, yes, his sister has been fornicating with her boyfriend. 
even though the sex lasts for less than five seconds. A boyfriend leaves, and Michael heads upstairs where he kills his older sister Judith with the butcher knife. Michael's parents come home to find Michael dazed and silent, holding the bloodied knife. Michael is now at a sanitarium, where his doctor is trying to convince other doctors supervising the case that Michael should be transferred to a maximum security prison. You see, Dr. Loomis has been observing Michael for six months, and he is convinced that Michael is evil incarnate itself. But he cannot convince the other doctors, so Michael, who has still not spoken a single word since Halloween, will remain in a sanitarium. Fast forward 15 years. It is October 30th, and of course, it is a dark and stormy night, so this can't be good. Michael Myers somehow escapes the sanitarium and steals a car. Loomis is convinced that Michael is heading back home to Haddonfield. The following day, Michael, now dressed in a blue jumpsuit and a white Halloween mask, is back in Haddonfield and begins stalking high school student Lori Strode. Lori notices that someone in a costume seems to be following her, but she doesn't take it too seriously because it is Halloween. Dr. Loomis visits the cemetery where Michael's sister Judith was buried and finds that her headstone is missing. Loomis then informs the town sheriff and the two begin looking for Michael. That night, Lori finds herself babysitting at a house while her friend Annie babysits across the street. Annie wants to take advantage of the situation to bring over her boyfriend, so she dumps the kid that she is babysitting with Lori so Annie can have a good time. But before Annie can go over and pick up her boyfriend, Michael strangles her in the car. Not too long later, Linda, another friend of Lori's and Annie's, comes over with her boyfriend to visit Annie, but finds the house she was at deserted, so they start having a good time themselves. While downstairs to get a beer for Linda, the boyfriend is attacked and killed by Michael. Michael then appears in the bedroom doorway, pretending to be Bob in a ghost costume. Linda gets annoyed and calls Lori. But as soon as Lori picks up the phone, Michael strangles her with a telephone cord. Lori is now worried and puts the kids to bed and then goes and investigates across the street. She stumbles upon her friend's bodies and then Michael appears and starts attacking her. She falls down the staircase and escapes, albeit injured. Michael is following and continues to chase Lori, even though she manages to stab and injure him a few times. After stabbing him with his own knife, Lori tells the kids to run and get help. Lori herself is tired and injured, and as she gets up, Michael again attacks her from behind. The kids screaming has managed to alert Dr. Loomis, who was initially waiting at the old Myers house, but has since then been wandering through the neighborhoods. Loomis runs into the house and shoots Michael, which gets him off Lori. Loomis goes into the bedroom, and Michael is still standing. Loomis then shoots him another five times, and Michael is pushed back and falls through the second-floor balcony onto the ground outside. Lori then states, It was the boogeyman. To which Loomis responds, As a matter of fact, it was. It seems like it's over. Loomis then walks and peers over the balcony, expecting to find Michael Myers lying dead on the ground, but he is nowhere to be found. The movie ends with a point-of-view shot of Michael looking around the neighborhood, Breathing heavily through his mask, the boogeyman is still out there. So, Jeff, like always, just based on your initial take of the plot synopsis, what's the first thing that pops in your mind there? Yeah, it, it has kind of a campfire story feel to it. You know, yes. the, the escape lunatic, you know, coming back for revenge. So that was that's kind of my initial take on just looking at the synopsis. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like your traditional classic horror story. Yeah, it is a classic horror story, but it, it really, like, I really literally had the feeling of sitting around a fire and, you know, it's dark and just those sort of ghost stories that you would tell around the fire of the escape lunatic or the, 
the guy hiding in the back seat of the car that you know that kind of thing it had that it really has that feel well that's interesting because i yeah I, you're, you're right it does have that feeling now that you mention it this is something i can picture listening to around a campfire we used to go with school and the scouts uh, camping and they used to tell you know scary stories like this different ones but i can totally see and just kind of picture in my mind someone saying this and telling this kind of story it's actually quite appropriate so i never thought of it that yeah. way before that's yeah. it's interesting all right but i'll share some trivia with you before we start analyzing the movie itself so this movie was released in 1978 and even though this movie has been considered to be the granddaddy of all slasher films, there, of course, have been other movies and influences that have helped define this movie as well. So some examples include Psycho, of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there's actually a Canadian movie called Black Christmas, which is, again, similar where you have a killer chasing people. The original idea from the producers for this movie was to have Carpenter make a film for them about a psychotic killer that just simply only stalked babysitters. So they formulated the movie just based off that concept. So Carpenter and his girlfriend, I believe her name is Deborah Hill. She also got writing credit here. Uh, they initially drafted a story titled <laughs> The Babysitter Murders. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we can see it didn't go that far. So good, yeah. call, good call on the producers as they suggested ditching that and setting the movie on Halloween. So it got called simply Halloween, which is a lot more effective. So the producers gave Carpenter a budget of 300000 to make this movie. Producers wanted Carpenter to direct this film after seeing Assault on Precinct 13 that he had done before, but they were worried he didn't have enough experience still. So Carpenter really wanted to do this film, so he took a big pay cut, and he only got $10,000 for writing, directing, and composing the music. But he asked to retain 10% of the film's profits, which was a good thing because this movie went on to make $70 million worldwide theatrically at that time. So that's like not adjusted for dollars. It's 70 million back in 1978 based on a budget of 300,000. So that's a he wow. very healthy return. So this um, film led to, of course, the horror franchise of Halloween, which has seven sequels. And of course, the film got rebooted in 07 by Rob Zombie, which we'll talk about today. And that film also just got one sequel. All sequels deal with somewhat a continuing story with Halloween 2 of the John Carpenter Halloween 2 being the most direct sequel to this movie. It actually literally takes place right afterwards. And the other um, movies also deal with Michael Myers, but they kind of skip forward in the future and Michael's chasing his niece instead of we don't know what happens to Lori per se. She may have just died or something and she had a daughter and I guess he was chasing her niece instead of the sister. Halloween 3, however, had nothing to do with Michael Myers. It's the only movie in the franchise that does that. It's just about a witch, like a, or some kind of... I think it's called Season of the Witch. I saw it a long time ago. Uh, I know some people really like that film, but uh, I, I've, it's been so long I really can't comment on it. But now we're just talking about just influence of this movie. So, of course, this movie had so much influence on the genre. And I'll give you some interesting points on how influential it has been. In 2006, it was actually selected for preservation in the United States Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. So I'll, I want to get your thoughts on that after, maybe at the end of talking about this movie. This movie has managed to also crack AFI's uh, list of 100 years, 100 thrills, and has mentioned it's largely, largely responsible for the popularization of slasher films in the 1980s, such as talked about Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and it helped create the final girl protagonist trope which has obviously been reused over and over again in many, many slasher movies. It's usually a girl at the end dealing with 
the monster. This film gets credit for starting that. So I thought, thought that's interesting. So I want to ask you, do you have any comments on, on the trivia? I'll also sprinkle a little, little bit more trivia as we go through the movie. But just on that, do you want to say anything? I think it's interesting that the uh, that Halloween 3 didn't have anything to do with Michael Myers. I mean, that that seems a little unusual. It's like Jaws, but... it's like Jaws 3 being like about a trout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jaws 3, we're not about a shark. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense at all. But I mean, like, it's like, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. So that's interesting. Maybe I got to watch that now. I could see, uh, you know, it being considered for a preservation by the Library of Congress. I think I think John Carpenter's uh, an underappreciated director. You know, I mean, uh, he's had a very uh, prolific career. He's made lots of films, but wouldn't say that he's quite ever cracked the mainstream. So I'm happy that's to, true. I'm, yeah, I'm happy to hear that. I think the budget here, pretty surprising. That's That's low budget. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think that they had any intention of having the success that they had for this movie. No. It's just going to be a B-level horror and then turned out to be something better because, again, the skill of John Carpenter, uh, there, there is some – we could talk about his directorial style and what he brings to the table. But I also love that he made the music. He creates the themes. I don't. I think he does that for some other of his films. Yeah, um, John Carpenter does do that in many of his films where he composes the music as well and – it's pretty iconic here. So you can't minimize the man's uh, talent, I, I think, for sure. And the, the music that he manages here and in, in the other films where he does do it, you got to give the guy credits. And I'm a, I'm a big Carpenter fan myself. The guy's, he's fantastic. He's good. He's good for sure. So uh, we'll, we'll see how good. Look, I do like a couple of his other films. So we'll talk about this one too at the end. But let's just get right into it to save time. So I just wanted to ask you about the opening credits. So the opening credits, again, we get that great, familiar, iconic Halloween score. The music, it sets the tone. You just see a, a pumpkin with some flashing candlelight on the inside, and it's all dark around it. It just sets the tone and the atmosphere. What did you think about that? Do you agree? It just really, could you get a feeling of tension or dread just with the opening credits? Yeah, I totally did. The music being the biggest contributor to that. What a simplistic score, but... Oh, so fantastic. I, I I was drawn in right away. I love the jack-o'-lantern. So simple. It had a real low-budget kind of cheesy feel, but it really set the tone. I was drawn right in, and you know, not to not to get ahead of ourselves, but after the uh, stark, realistic take of Rob Zombie film, which I had watched first, I was right away refreshed by this take. Right. I, I thought it was great. Okay, that's good. That's good. Okay, so I'm glad to hear you say that. So that's good. So let's just get into the opening scene here. So we, it's the Myers house and we're seeing Michael through his point of view, through his mask and a lot of heavy breathing. He doesn't say anything. He's just outside up because he's dressed in a clown outfit. Looks like he was trick-or-treating, came home. He's seeing his sister and her boyfriend kissing on the couch. They go upstairs. I'm assuming they had sex. And he, the guy, I just want to point this out. That boyfriend came downstairs in like, what was five seconds? Like literally, that that might be a record. Yeah, I I, I actually <laughs> thought he he lasted longer than I expected to be. <laughs> <laughs> so the Michael just he grabs a butcher knife from the kitchen, goes upstairs, kills his sister. Parents come home and they just see Michael outside, just kind of with a dumbfounded look on his face. They just pull off the mask as he's holding a bloody knife. The one thing I I didn't like here, and I want to get your point of view, is I didn't. What did you think of? The choice that John Carpenter did with no reaction from the parents, and it just 
one thing about John Carpenter, he kind of holds on to shots, which is good. But this shot in particular just seemed a little off and weird because he's just pulling back. He's close up of Michael. Parents come home. He keeps zooming back, zooming back, zooming back. And the parents just, you know, all they do, they don't say a word. They don't even bother looking in the house saying what's happened. There's no dialogue exchange. What did you think of that? Yeah, an odd choice. I think you're right about that. It doesn't seem to quite fit. You know, John Carpenter does sort of have a minimalist style. It might not have been a deliberate choice. Maybe that's inexperience. Unless he's trying to make it dramatic, uh, but it didn't work. Yeah, I guess that's a good, that's a possibility as well. It, yeah, it, it doesn't quite work. It, it sort of stands out a little bit. You'd expect a little bit more drama in the scene here, considering what's just happened. Yeah, I agree. So before we cut uh, to the next scene, I just wanted to point out to you, and I'm sure you're aware that his mask was off, oh, like over his head. And before he actually either grabbed the knife or stabbed his sister, I can't remember which, he had, he slid the mask back on. So he's, this is signifying he is becoming something else. Yeah. So, which is a theme obviously played more and more throughout the film. So then we cut to the sanitarium and Loomis is talking over the, the Myers situation with the other doctors. And Loomis wants him, the weird thing I found here is, okay, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you find this odd? He wants him to go to a maximum security prison. Isn't this boy six years old? I was, because yeah. I haven't seen this movie for a while, I actually started laughing. Because as I mentioned before, I've I seen Halloween, like the full movie, like years ago. Yeah. But every Halloween, I'll catch like maybe the last 20, 30, 40 minutes. So I haven't seen the beginning of this for so long. And I was drinking something. I spit my drink out. Because he's, he's pushing for him to go into a maximum security prison. Did, what did yeah. you take on that? Again, because I had seen the zombie version first hmm. where we we see all of what happens in the sanitarium but i actually like this because we don't see the details we just see the doctor very passionately saying this guy is very dangerous and there is no cure for this guy there's no helping him there's no nothing so he's got to go to maximum security he's got to spend the rest of his life there so he knows that's how i took it is the doctor knows doesn't matter how old this kid is is he knows he's evil. He's evil, and he's got to be locked up, and we got to throw away the key, and that's it. So yeah, but I think that's I really still... like that. Like there was the dread there. Like it's going to be a problem. You know, we got to lock him up, and that's it. Oh, interesting. I, I did not like this scene at all. No, I thought I found it stupid, hilarious. Took me out of the movie a little bit. As a doctor, even if this kid is evil, this this is just a psychiatrist. He has no basis in terms of what kind of supernatural being this guy could be or something like that. Even if he, cause like he hasn't said a word. So he says he hasn't spoken a word. So where is he getting this from? I understand if you feel like he, there's a sense of dread and evil coming from the kid, but you don't throw a kid like that in a maximum security prison. That just takes me out of it. I know what they're going for because they're setting it up to be obvious that this kid is so evil. Watch out right to the audience. Yeah. But yeah. I, yeah. But yeah. I, it didn't work. It didn't work for me. But what what I did like, I want to ask you again, going back to John Carpenter's style, after his meeting with the doctors, Loomis goes to visit Michael, and he, there's a long hallway shot, if you recall, of him walking down, a very still shot. Um, is that more of John Carpenter's style, or is that just more of a sign of the 70s, where he just, like, these are long shots of a guy just walking down an empty hallway. There's no exposition. He's not talking to anybody. Nothing's happening. You're just getting a sense of atmosphere. I think it's a combination of the two things, for sure. Like I say, Carpenter's not a flashbang type of director, so 
as you mentioned already, he likes to linger. He likes to create atmosphere. It, this has a very 70s feel to it, this film, for sure. So I think you'd have to say it's a combination of the two. And really, I guess you could quite possibly credit John Carpenter with helping to create what we now know as the 70s aesthetic. Well, this is a 78 movie. But yeah, okay. Um, well, okay, <laughs> that's, that's fair enough. But I don't, I don't know. I think he, he makes it look good. You know, oh, I mean, okay. the, the 70s is a, a decent period for, for film, as goofy as dials were and colors and, you know, the palettes that you might use in films here. But I think he's showing himself to be, I, I like long sort of lingering shots like that. Yeah, I agree. I think modern films need to adapt more of a hybrid. I think in some aspects for this movie, when I was wrote it in my notes, there's a couple other scenes where John Carpenter does linger, holds the shot. A couple scenes where it's just way too long. Uh, I think modern movies are way too quick to cut away from something. But I think a hybrid is more of a pleasing aesthetic or something that builds a builds a movie and builds you know characters and builds the atmosphere. Uh, yeah. This and I like the shot of him coming down the hallway. But I just wanted to mention that because he does that a few times. So let's get back to the movie. He cuts fifteen years later. We move ahead. As I said, of course it's a dark and stormy night. So Loomis and a nurse are heading back to. I'm assuming pick up Michael Myers to send him to prison because they're going to the sanitarium. He's old enough now. I don't know why they're going in this terrible weather, but let's let's do it in the middle of the night. <laughs> and that's when you go, go to pick up crazy, of course, Lundix, man. That's of in the, course it's in the manual. Did you yeah, yeah. It? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have the manual. I wrote it, but I'm just saying. I'm just making fun of it because it's 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 a it's a stereotype, right? It's a part of those tropes, horror movie tropes, right? Where things just don't make sense. Characters don't, you know, don't act appropriately, but... Yeah, they don't make good decisions. No, no. Um, so as they approach the sanitarium, they find the inmates outside, so I'm assuming Michael broke them all out. Initially, I was confused. Unfortunately, they really don't explain it until a little bit later, and they just kind of do a one-off saying he did, he released them all to create confusion. But what did you think of kind of seeing adult Mike Myers for the first time. You don't see him in the classic outfit. You don't get a look at his face or anything. It's just a guy in a robe and jumps the car and smashes the car in, window in with his hand. What did, what did you think of these scenes? I thought it was an interesting introduction to the, you know, adult Michael Myers. He's just presented as a force to be reckoned with. And we don't see him too much. Really, we just see what he's capable of before we see what he actually is. Now, he can't uh, be reasoned with. Can't, can't be, be reasoned bargained with. Can't, can't be bargained, be bargained with. with. <laughs> he doesn't feel <laughs> remorse or pity. Yeah. Actually, it's very appropriate. <laughs> Maybe James yeah. Cameron talked to John Carpenter and they got some ideas off each other. You know what? Just, just as an aside, what's even more appropriate is when we had originally scheduled to do this podcast and you stood me up on the 11th of November and you couldn't do it, I went and watched terminator genesis oh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so thanks a lot and i watched that and i actually had i was thinking about this movie while i was watching that <laughs> and it was sort of the sort of the sort of the same thing you know he's just an unstoppable beast yeah essentially um, yep yeah so i actually thought it was a cool introduction to the character because uh you know they pull up the inmates are out yeah. I, again because i already knew the story I, I knew what had already happened it's michael myers has escaped so we see what he's capable of without seeing what he's actually done or anything like that. And I enjoyed the anticipation of that. Right? I felt it, it starts to build the tension. You know? Yeah, and I'll get into that. And I think there's an influence here. The, 
where John Carpenter got that, and I won't mention it here. But I agree with you. I like the concept of, and it works for the rest of the movie, where he starts off small and he'll build later. Um, you get more glimpses of Michael Myers as we continue. You get hardly any glimpse of him here except a brief shot of a guy in a robe and then his hand smashes the windshield to scare the nurse out of the car. But I still didn't like it. It it just wasn't filmed good enough, in my opinion, to make it scary. It just seemed a bit cheesy. Mm. Again, that's a sign of the times, but I can forgive it because I agree with you. I think he was trying to do something here, like a very small reveal and rebuild. So, yeah. so we cut to the next day. Uh, it's Halloween. We're in Haddonfield. So now we finally get a chance to get introduced to Laurie Strode, who's played by Jamie Lee Curtis. So just a little bit of trivia here. So John Carpenter admitted that he cast Jamie Lee Curtis because her mom is Janet Leigh, and she was the girl who was killed in the shower scene in Psycho. I don't know if you knew that or not. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, that's her mom. So that's why she's part of that Scream Queen fraternity, like really the originators. So, so like everyone says Jamie Lee Curtis is like the original Scream Queen, and she kind of is because she did the sequel to this movie. And she also starred in other horror movies uh, in this time, but her mom is really the first one. Hmm. And so it's interesting. Yeah, so it's quite cool. So that's why John Carpenter hired her. He gave her the benefit of the doubt. He wanted to hire uh, hire another actress, but he thought bringing in Janet Leigh's daughter would give some geek points to the genre. And that's kind of what he said, albeit slightly different. So going back to the movie, her dad, I guess, is a real estate agent, and she tells her, drop some paperwork off at the old Myers house because he's about to sell it, I guess, after 15 years. Somebody finally wants to buy that uh, piece of shit property. So she drops <laughs> off some paperwork at the Myers house through the mail slot and get a quick shot of Michael Myers like kind of breathing and looking again from the inside of the house he's there and then we're back at the sanitarium and Loomis of course is furious with the other doctors rightfully so because Michael Myers escaped the one thing I wanted to point out here is what was your take on um, when they go to the room the nurse shows the the room where he kind of just threw everything away and kind of messed up the room and he carved the word sister on the back of the door so and then Loomis says he's going to Haddonfield because he believes Michael Myers is going home. But what did you take of that? That scene? Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of a tough one because we aren't to this point, you know, given any knowledge that, like, what is what is that supposed to mean, right? Right. So because I had seen the, because I knew the story and I had seen the zombie version first. You knew what was going on. I knew what was going on. So to introduce it this way, you know, like cold, I think, again, uh, you know, Carpenter understands subtlety and he doesn't need to spell everything out, even though I guess he literally spells out sister <laughs> yes, <yes>. here, <laughs> but it's not explicitly stated. No, no. Right? Uh, and we can talk about it later because it, it could mean different things. And I'm not sure if it's really explained. He kind of left it ambiguous. So, so now we're going to get several scenes. Michael Myers, we're coming back to Haddonfield. Michael Myers is stalking Lori and her friends, seems mostly interested in her. So I'll just go through a couple of scenes here. You see him at the, at the car in the school and her, him following her in the car. You see him stalking her and her friends walking home from the school in the car and on foot. You get a far shot of Michael Myers behind a hedge. It's kind of your first glimpse at the white mask because he stole it at a hardware store. Uh, you don't see him steal it. You just kind of hear the sheriff kind of talk about it, that there was a robbery there. You get another shot of him outside watching her outside her house as he is partially hidden in the clothes lines. And you get some creepy shots of him just staring. Every kind of new shot, you're getting you're getting a little bit more of a close-up to Michael Myers. Very far away, quick cuts, a little bit more closer, a little bit more closer. So what did you think of these stalking scenes? Did you, did you find them effective at all? Or 
or whatnot. Yeah, I, I, I did. I, I love these, man. I liked it. You know, he just, you know, he'll vanish behind the shrub there. And, you know, dude just sort of shows up out of nowhere. It, it's, it's pretty creepy. And you don't really have, you don't have an obstructed view of the guy, but because they're such long shots, you don't see exactly what it is. You right. Know, like there's a guy out there. You can't really tell he's wearing the mask, but something's off. Right. So I, I really enjoyed how, how we structured these, these shots here. I thought it was very effective in creating the dread. We see what the characters are seeing. And, and I like being put in their position. I think that's very effective. Yeah, it's it's good mood building. I wanted to just point out something again, just talking about how he's slowly building up Michael Myers. Quick glimpses, a little bit longer glimpses, a little bit longer glimpses, and it getting bigger and bigger in terms of size because he's so far back in perspective and then he's, he's getting closer. So what this reminded me of actually was, and let me know if you agree, is Jaws and how Spielberg, even though it was partially not originally intended because of the technical difficulties in Jaws, he couldn't get the shark working, but he used that to mood build and atmosphere build uh, appropriately because every attack or every scene with the shark, you get slightly little bit more glimpses of him. And we're doing this and you get a little bit more detail of his, like say the shark's head. In this case, you get slightly more detail every time you see Michael Myers of his face. So, like of the mask. So, do you agree? Like, do you think that that was an influence for John Carpenter here? Well, I mean, it's hard or is to that say. A stretch? I don't think it's a stretch because you know when you're a filmmaker, you watch movies. So obviously, he would have seen Jaws. You know, there's no question there. And how can you not be influenced by Steven Spielberg if you're a young filmmaker in that time? Of course. So yeah. when you're working with a limited budget, and as Spielberg, I'm sure understood himself. I mean, you, you've got to pick your spots. You, know, you can't go with extravaganza if you want to build the mood and build the extravaganza it's more important with what you don't show when you don't have the money to show anything in order to build the tension so i mean whether or not carpenter was influenced by spielberg in this sense he understood the same concept that spielberg did which is you can't show all of your shit right away because you don't have the money to do it you to do it for the whole movie you have to pick your spots with you know with showing what you can show so if not directly influenced, you know, by Jaws and by Spielberg, they would have had the same thought process here, I think. Yes, I think that I'll point out another Jaws reference later. So I think he was still referenced because Jaws just came out a couple of years ago. So it was the biggest movie at the time. Uh, I mean, then Star Wars came out, of course. But I mean, he's using Jaws the way Jaws was built to build Michael Myers. And there's another scene where it's kind of similar. I just I just feel like he was really heavily influenced there. But I agree with you. A, a good filmmaker would have a similar thought process here. The, um, the music's slightly reminiscent, though, you'd have to say. Uh, slightly, yeah. It's a good point. It is slightly. It's very simple, yet effective. So I want to hit you with one other piece of trivia. And I'm sh it's so ingrained in pop culture and such a well-known fact. I'm, I'd be surprised if you did not know this. But do you know what the source of Michael Myers' mask was in reality? Uh, no. I mean, oh of my. course I do. But I want you to, oh. I want you to tell our <laughs> listeners. Of as course. If I didn't, as if I didn't know. <laughs> Shatner, <laughs> of course. Captain Kirk oh, so himself. Shatner mask, that's right. I did know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you playing me? or, are you, or... <laughs> no, no, I, no, I'm not playing you. For, yeah, now that you mention it. I, I do recall that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a William Shatner Captain Kirk mask. And they just funked up the hair a little bit. They were so low budget. They didn't know where to get a good mask from. So 
they saw a mask and they painted it white. They got his mask, painted it white, and then they kind of redid the hair a little bit. And there you go. That is Shatner. And as you, does that kind of like clue in a little bit more now? Like as you kind of picture Michael Myers, is, can you see the resemblance in that mask? Now we're obviously talking about like 60s Captain Kirk. Yeah, of course. Yeah, the resemblance is there. Uh, they should have just got William Shatner to play <laughs> Michael Myers. Yes. His face white, <laughs> but, you know, buffed up his toupee a bit. Yeah, that would have been great. That would have been a different beast altogether. The world, but... the world would be a different place right now today. <laughs> Honestly, they... it would have been better. It, Anything with Shatner is better, man. Come on. I don't know, man. That we might be living in a very dark and disturbing place. <laughs> I'm all for it's it if it means more not, Shatner. But it might be even worse. <laughs> I'm all for it if it's more Shatner, man. Yeah, I yeah, love the, I love the dude. It's like Nick Cage. How can you go? <laughs> now, if they—that's what they should have done for the remake—is done a Nick Cage mask. <laughs> That shit would have been terrifying. Oh, yeah, Or for had sure. Dick Cage as Michael Myers in the remake. No, or the remake, if it's kind of like a new generation, it should have been like a Captain Picard mask. He's bald. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, that, the world doesn't exist. That. <laughs> we would have all been sucked into a black hole if that had happened. All right, so, so going back to the movie. So intermixed with these stalking scenes, you get Loomis trying to convince the police that Michael Myers is here and there's a danger. Uh, I like these scenes because usually in horror movies, you get characters that don't act rationally. So here he's trying to act somewhat rational, trying to do the right thing. Loomis then later visits the cemetery where Judith Myers is buried. That's the sister who was stabbed when Michael was young and killed. So her gravestone is missing. I wanted to ask you, because unfortunately you did see the zombie version first, but I'm thinking in this point, I'm not 100% sure because it's still very ambiguous. I think that's what Michael Myers in this movie meant by sister. He's going home. He's grabbing her gravestone. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Because it's so ambiguous, I, right? It is. It is ambiguous at this point. Yeah. The scene just struck me because I'm like, how did he lift the gravestone? Well, he's, we'll get into that. Don't worry. We'll get into that later. Okay. Okay. But anyways, but I loved the line of Loomis saying he came home. I loved that. But I also loved how on their way to the Judas, um, where she was buried, I loved how he didn't give a shit about the story the cemetery custodian was telling. He just kept cutting yeah. him off. <laughs> so it was pretty yeah. funny. And even do that again in, in the Rob Zombie version, it's actually quite a funny scene. So <laughs> I love that. Son of a bitch. Uh, Not okay. you, the guy. Okay. <laughs> <Not> you. <laughs> okay. Shut up, Harry. <laughs> so Michael Myers then keeps following Lori and her friend. So he follows them to where they're babysitting. Loomis and the sheriff then go visit the old Myers house. So I got a chuckle when they came across the remains of a dog and Loomis just plainly says he got hungry. Yeah. <laughs> he just looks at him. There's no reaction. He just goes, he got hungry. Yeah. That's a pretty disturbing scene. Like, ah, you know, like I need lunch. I get it. <laughs> yeah. I laughed. I was pretty, I was pretty funny. But what's even worse, it's even more funny is the sheriff then says he thinks a skunk did this to the dog. Yeah. What the fuck? What kind of skunk does this to a dog? It's a big oh. skunk. <laughs> I was laughing gonna so need hard. need a bigger boat. <laughs> yeah. That skunk. There's a, gra- there's a million dollar idea right there. Forget Thanksgiving. It's like, you got to think of a title for a skunk killer movie. Yeah. <laughs> Stink giving. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, classic, classic horror movie denial. Like, yeah. oh yeah, there's a knife sticking out of that body. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, he just fell on it and fell backwards with the knife in his chest like come on yeah so i mean i i just have a question for you obviously this is such a ridiculous conversation here i didn't find it 
that these two people, especially Loomis, was kind of like talking like this. Did you find that this was just John Carpenter's attempt, attempt to inject a bit of humor here? Or do you think that he was trying to take this scene seriously? Because oh, I was laughing. Yeah, or is it just like a dated scene because of the sign of the times? I, I don't know. It is I, difficult. It's difficult to say because John Carpenter, he does understand humor and where to inject it, I think. But it's partially that and partially the sign of the times. Again, it's kind of a campfire type of story. So it's not, it doesn't have a realistic feel to it. So you can take some liberties with, you know, with character conversations, with decisions. So a lot of these times when, you know, you might question somebody's motivations, I, I don't know, I was able to kind of write it off a little bit just to the, the feel of the film, the, the fairy tale kind of quality to it. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, for me, I like the scene because I laugh. So it's like me watching Jar Jar Binks. I, I laugh. So now I can laugh at it. But Speaking of horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this scene didn't, if I'm supposed to judge it on a critical level, it doesn't work. Because these people are supposed to be somewhat educated and smart. Yeah. And thinking of Skunk did this thing. But I enjoy it because it's funny. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, moving, speaking of dogs, we continue on that theme. We come back to Michael Myers stalking Annie and Lori at the babysitting place. And this guard dog just comes outside growling and you hear him squeal as Annie is inside. And then I again laughed so hard because of the dog kill. Annie hears the squeal and says, oh, the dog must have found a hot date. And the, yeah. scene, the scene cuts away and Michael, Michael Myers is like, you just see the bottom half of Michael Myers and the bottom half of the dog. And the dog just goes limp and it looks like they're embracing. <laughs> <laughs> like they're having a moment, you know? Well, maybe he didn't kill the dog. Maybe he gave it a big hug and, uh, you know, scratched behind the ears and sent him on his way, you know? Oh, my God. I was laughing so hard. That was – this is the first kind of kill we see of adult Michael Myers. I was a bit let down because I had totally forgot about this scene. Yeah. Um, it wasn't filmed good. And, again, no. that's a low-budget inexperience here maybe. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the case. It's We can kind of see what he's trying to create here, which is the – you know, the dumb teenagers making bad decisions. Like, oh, the dog's fine. And it, some dramatic irony where we can see what's actually happening. I'm like, wow, fuck, why can't you see what's going on? You stupid idiot. Well, actually. Can't, and that's part of the tension, you know, and that's true. But not much has happened even at this point. So well, no, but we know that the dude's going to be, you know, murdering everything pretty soon here. So even if you've never seen anything before, you get that's what's going to be happening. So. It's part of building the tension. It's part of building the tension. So I want to ask you then, pretty much I think the movie is half over. So how invested are you here? Because Michael really hasn't killed anybody. I mean, I think he killed the truck driver where he got the coveralls. That's probably, and now the dog. But they're kind of more off-screen deaths. Are you invested so far? Are you going along for the ride? Or are you getting a bit bored at this point? At this point, I'm not bored. I'm actually, maybe invested is a strong word, but... I'm going along with it at this point. To go back to our earlier analogy, I'm sitting around the fire. I'm leaning forward. I'm listening to the storyteller. Tell me this story. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm at right now. Okay. All right. So yeah, getting back to the movie. So again, after some more stalking shots, we finally get the first real kill for adult Michael Myers. So Annie, as I said before on the plot summary, she dumps the kid with Lori that she was looking after. So she can go pick up her boyfriend, and while she's in the car, Michael Myers strangles her to death. So this is kind of a common trope. You knew this was coming. It wasn't really scary in my point of view. The death was pretty ho-hum. Do you agree? The only thing here is I did like is that you finally get 
a good close-up shot of the mask, which is a character in of itself, irrespective if, if it is a Shatner mask. <laughs> in my opinion, I guess I said, that just makes it all the more better. But do, what do you think of that? Did you kind of find this death kind of ho-hum? What did you think of the scene? I don't know why <laughs> I want to say it's ho-hum. I mean, you can't blow your wad on the first on the first kill. No. Either. So I think it was a appropriately lower key. That's yeah. what I thought of it. Okay. So Loomis then and the sheriff, we see them now standing outside the old Myers house. I did like it when Loomis was scaring the kids away as he was hiding in the bushes. Uh, and then he was kind of proud of it. He kind of got into the spirit of Halloween for a second. I like that scene. But now again, going back to the Jaws influence here, I'm just talking about the conversation he's having with the sheriff here where he's trying to convince another uh, one of the powers that be that there's a danger here. Because this guy who's a sheriff, a kid, just like... Mayor Vaughn and Jaws, who was kind of in charge of the town, didn't believe that there was a danger. So here Loomis is trying to convince the sheriff there's a danger. Reminded me of when Brody and Hooper were trying to convince the mayor of a great white shark. You know, it's like, I think you're going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you in the ass. So it's, you know, <laughs> did you agree? It's, again, a very similar situation, a good direct influence here, or again, is that a stretch? Yeah. Yeah, good point. It's not a stretch at all. It is a very similar situation. It's a direct influence or not. Uh, hard to say, but I think, yeah, definitely it could be. Definitely could be a very direct influence here. You know, again, it's, I mean, what's really significant is it's woven into the genre now where the, the authority figures are refused to believe Yes, what's happening here. And like, shit, come on, you got to see the writing on the wall. Well, yeah, but that's another trope, right? Because, I mean, yeah. and we can get into that because I think Zombies movie deals with the impact of the authorities getting involved a little bit more. I mean, not a lot more, but a little bit more. So it'll be interesting to, to talk about that comparison. So just going back here. So John Carpenter takes us back to the babysitting, the houses where they're at. So Lori's other friend, Linda, and her boyfriend go to the house Annie was staying at to meet her. But because now she's dead, they find the house deserted. So they, of course, start having sex to cross that off the checklist along with the boob shots. But I did like the boyfriend kill. You get a sense here of Michael Myers' strength. So going back to how he can lift the gravestone, I think you could see here that it's more of a supernatural being. Like he is possessed. It's not a man. It's something more than a man. Do you agree with that? Because like um, he takes, he picks up, he strangles the boyfriend lifts him into the wall, is able to impale him with a butcher knife into the wall. Uh, these are just, again, that along with the gravestone, you're trying to get a sense that yeah. this guy's a bit more stronger than the average human. I get the I get the idea that, you know, he's a beast of a man, but I don't get any supernatural element here. I did have a problem with this kill with the butcher knife, just from a real realism standpoint. Yeah, he no way he'd be get the knife all the way through. All the way through. Yeah. And even if he did, that knife's not holding that. No. Up. Yeah, I think it's that's coming, more of the problem. Down. He's coming yeah. down. That's more of my problem. But I think they, they're, what they're trying to say here is that he is such an unstoppable force that he's able to accomplish what seems to be almost the impossible. I agree. That is exactly what they're trying to go for. Unfortunately. I yeah, it didn't, it didn't work. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I, I agree. I, I, that's why I wanted to bring it up is because this death, I like the other death better. This death didn't work for me and i also noted that the guy died pretty instantly for getting stabbed in the gut <laughs> he wasn't stabbed yeah. in the chest i think in the rob zombie ver version he's stabbed in the heart dies pretty quick this guy gets stabbed in the gut and dies quick even quicker so yeah yeah you're lasting for a while there unfortunately for getting stabbed in the gut 
you're going to yeah. last for a while and it doesn't quite ring true again maybe a sign of the times and they're they, you know, they're trying to do something stylistically here like you said trying to portray i don't want to say supernatural aspects of michael myers because that's never he's not supernatural but the uh hyperphysical of this guy he's a he's a beast well i'll argue with the supernatural essence later but let me continue so we're going to get now the classic shot of him in the bedsheet. And this is now one of those classic scenes when a lot of people think of Halloween and the, one of the best kills or most memorable kills in all of the movies for Michael Myers and even all of the classic horror slasher movies. This is the one that a lot of people will reference is the bedsheet one. Yep. He's, uh, you know, dressed up as a ghost with the boyfriend's glasses trying to fool Linda and he kills her while she's talking to Lori on the phone. So did you like these scenes? Did you find them effective? I did really like the scenes. I like it in a movie when nothing happens. Mm -hmm. So you sort of fill it in yourself or when one character is kind of filling it in because he just fucking stands there. Right. And she's having a whole conversation with the We know as the viewer, like, shit, she's dog meat. Right. And it's just a question of when. It's not if. And she doesn't know shit. She's sitting there. You know, she just got laid. She's got her tits hanging out. And she doesn't know shit. So we're just, we're waiting. Like, when is he going to kill her and how? That's all I was wondering. And I, I found that very effective. And we can talk about it later, but there's some weird shit with pairing sexuality with violence. And yeah, it's, kind of, I think that's very heightened in this scene. It's very heightened in this scene. And I, even Zombie takes it, notches it up a little, little bit even more, even yeah. in this very yeah. similar scene. Yeah, living up to those tropes, right? So yeah, but okay, well, we can get into that again later. So, so Lori gets, because she was on the phone with Linda, when Linda started to get strangled, Lori wasn't sure what happened, but she gets worried. So she puts the kids to bed, goes over, and now we get the classic trope of the last female protagonist. She's discovering all the corpses. Yeah. So this is where you're getting all the classic jump scares. And I'm not sure, because I couldn't find any information on this. And without going back and looking at all the other ones, it probably was done in somewhat in Psycho and somewhat in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But this might be where the first movie where the protagonist where all the bodies just kind of pop up like they're and get discovered almost like they're in a booby trap. Like the killer is setting it up in unrealistic ways where they're just kind of laying out or they come swinging down or something like that. I always find it funny that the bad guys have time to lay them around the house perfectly. But this might be the first movie where it kind of does that. But I did want to point out one scene here, and I love this scene. And this could be one of my favorite shots in the movie is as she's getting scared finding these bodies and she's kind of frozen in shock, you see Michael Myers' white mask slowly come out of the darkness. It's a slow mm -hmm. build. It's a great lighting effect, and yeah. it's an amazing shot. Great shot. Yeah. Great shot. Yeah. I mean, just visually looks fantastic, sets the, the dread perfectly. Uh, yeah. Masterful shot. Loved it. It is masterful. That, that was an amazing shot. So, so then Michael starts chasing her. I think he clips her with a knife. She goes falling down the stairs, and then she runs across the street limping. I love the fact that she was screaming for her life and tried to get neighbors, but I'm assuming because it's Halloween, everybody was ignoring her. So it's like yeah. thinking it's a Halloween prank. But I can believe that. Yeah, I can totally believe that. It's I, like, I, oh, I can shit, I don't want to give any more candy. Fuck, turn the lights off. Yeah, and then we get now some more stalking. Like Michael Myers, I guess, got through a window, jumps at her from behind a couch. She stabs him a little bit, like in the eye or in the in the shoulder, and then goes upstairs and, and they get the closet scene where Michael's trying to break in. And that's a classic scene, breaking through that closet. And then what did you think of that? Did, did you like these scenes? 
Yeah, no, I know. I like the scenes. I don't believe that after being able to lift that dude up with one hand and impaling him with the butcher knife that he couldn't get into that closet. Yeah, I, there's some, you know, grains of salt you have to take here, right? Because that guy should have just been, yeah. that guy should have just been like, I'm just going to pry open this thing with my bare hands in one go and that closet's going to deteriorate. He would have obliterated that closet with his eyeballs <laughs> yes. pretty easily. <laughs> it's gone and she's done, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm assuming his penis can lift that gravestone as well. Yeah, so, exactly. like, yeah. so uh, you, you get more of these things. And then like the kids go out screaming, like, cause she stabs him in, cause he drops the knife while he's breaking through the closet. Uh, she picks up the knife, stabs him in the gut, falls back. He's a, seems like he's dead or unconscious. So she tells the kids to run and get help, but she's injured and exhausted. But you see a great shot of Michael Myers sitting up as she's, you know, kind of looking away from him. And then he goes and grabs her. But then Loomis comes, he hears the kids screaming, comes back and then shoots him. And I love the scene where he comes in. I love it after he actually shoots him. Or it's actually something before that. Lori actually manages to do something to Michael and get the mask off. And he pauses because he's got to put the mask back on. And then Loomis shoots him. He goes backwards into the room. And Loomis comes up there, and I love the shot where he's just kind of standing still. Again, he's not almost like John Carpenter's, like, this is not a human. Like, this is an unstoppable force, something else. And I love that shot because you just see kind of almost like him. It's it's not lit. Like, he's not lit. It's just a shadow. And it's a great shot. And then he shoots him another five times. Michael gets flown back every shot and finally falls over the balcony, second floor balcony onto the ground outside. And, and this is funny. I've always wondered what lori said to when i even when i was young i always thought she said was that the boogeyman but actually what she says is it was the boogeyman but i always i i think i understand where it's coming from because she was talking about the boogeyman with the kids before throughout the movie but i think i would have preferred my original thought was was that the boogeyman i think that would have been a little more appropriate and loomis saying as a matter of fact that was and i love that line and then it's a great all these are all great scenes and then my favorite is that he peers over and he's gone and the music kicks in what did you think of that like he's just gone uh you know to be honest it's hard to say i'm kind of mixed on it because on the one hand you know we get this supernatural force that you're talking about here uh and it's appropriate that he's gone fucking pumped five rounds into the dude and he fell off the second story balcony and then he's gone so obviously he's still alive and he got up and ran away but this movie I haven't seen any of the other the sequel. I haven't, I haven't even, I hadn't seen this the first time I've seen it. He's not a supernatural. He was a dude who was batshit crazy and was really strong. You get five rounds into you and fall off a second story roof, you're you're going to the hospital and probably you're going to the morgue. Okay, while I agree with you and I understand your reservations here, there is nowhere like what Loomis is trying to say is that he is something else, and that's what he's been saying since the beginning. Even though I questioned why he would say that on a six-year-old kid when you give it more time. But I think that's what John Carpenter is going for. Because it, this is the idea, what he says is, is Michael Myers was initially just referred to by John Carpenter and what other people refer to him as the shape. He is just, it's almost, so what the concept here was that John Carpenter had said, so I'll enlighten you with, enlighten you with more of trivia, backstory here, is the concept of Solon. I think some people think, can pronounce it Samhain. I'm not sure, but I think the proper Gaelic pronunciation is Samhain. And that's like a Gaelic festival 
marking the end of harvest. That's the generic term, like the modern times term, but it has some pagan origins and was observed in ancient times. And that date and that concept was seen as a boundary between this world and another world where spirits could come and cross over and the souls of the dead would visit their houses. So these are the concepts that John Carpenter used to form Michael Myers, also known as The Shape. So that's where he was coming from with the concept of Michael Myers. So thing is, is like, we're not given any backstory to this kid. So we, we just see him trick-or-treating and then he goes crazy. I would argue with you in that idea of a supernatural force or evil can still preside in this kid. We just don't get the backstory of what that was because you put it perfectly. It's just more of like a horror story, like a campfire story. We don't need to know. But that's what John Carpenter was kind of pushing here. <sighs> okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, when you put it that way, yeah, that makes sense. Now, that's funny because this is what the kind of the experiment I wanted to talk with you. Why don't we hold off on that? All right. Let's go through Rob Zombie's Halloween a little bit. And then you tell me this concept because this concept's a bit different in Rob Zombie's Halloween. This is the one aspect where some people said it's blasphemy to take it in this new direction. But we'll talk about that. So, so I'll just quickly talk to you again. I'm just going to give you a couple points on Rob Zombie's trivia. Or actually, first things first before we even go on. Why don't you just quickly tell me your first thoughts about John Carpenter's Halloween, the movie's done. Okay. Yeah, high-level thoughts. I'll go back to the uh, the campfire story. I thought was the overall feel for me, and that's a positive. That allowed me to have some fun with the film. In that context, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I'm a Carpenter fan. I love the music. And and with the sort of the, the 70s aesthetic, whether they whether John Carpenter intended this at the time or not. Nowadays, it feels very surreal, uh, which fits with the campfire theme. Uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. It was effective in creating the suspense. I was able to enjoy the slasher elements of it, you know, with the, with the kills. It was fun to watch. You know, I wasn't hiding behind my pillow. Hmm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was hiding behind my pillow a little bit. But... <laughs> No, actually, on a serious level, did you find any bits of this? So it's a loose term, scary. Not in a genuine fashion, really, but I found the dread genuine. I did feel what I thought, you know, Carpenter meant me to feel. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was uh, I was invested, and you know, I, I I felt it. It was still kind of removed through the lens of this is somewhat of a fairy tale to right. me, mm -hmm. but I actually liked that. But then, see, now I'm going to argue with you. So, uh, if you're if you're setting as a campfire story and as a fairy tale and a myth, yeah. I'm surprised you have a problem with the ending. I, I see what you're saying there. The reason why I have a problem with that is Michael Myers was not set up as anything more than human. I mean, with a physical body and a, with physical trappings. You know, there wasn't anything to suggest that he can resist gunshot wounds. If somebody puts a bullet through your fucking intestine, your liver, and your heart, you get shot five times with a fucking gun. He's going down. Campfire or not, it wasn't supernatural to me. So that's why I didn't... So that's more of a failure of the film building that aspect for you. Yeah, I thought so. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, yeah I okay. didn't see him as supernatural. Just uh, the campfire, yes, but campfire doesn't necessarily mean supernatural to me. Right. I'll just talk about my thoughts. So, like, again... It is a classic, and, and I grew up with it. 
my glasses are rose tinted when I look at this film and watch it, but it's been so long since I watched the whole film that I, I did find some aspects that didn't work. I wasn't really fond of the beginning of the film, but I, I liked some of the tension building when he's stalking and how those scenes were filmed. I liked the fact that I can, I believed in that supernatural aspect of it. And as you said, it wasn't scary, but I bought that creep factor, the dread that he's still out there. And that ending just completely works for me. It is such a wonderful and perfectly executed ending. I love it. Like when he is gone and the music kicks in and you hear him breathing and he's just out there. To me, that means that this evil on Halloween is out there. And if the movie ended here, I would assume that he's he's coming here every on Halloween night to cause terror. And he chose these three people. So, but what I, doesn't work is that the aspect of sister. Because in the second movie of John Carpenter's Halloween, like the sequel to this one, in that movie it's revealed that Jamie Lee Curtis is his sister. In the same way that it was done in the Rob Zombie one, that he had a younger sister, she got adopted. Somehow Michael knew, and that's probably through that supernatural element, he just did know. And that's why he was able to zero in on her in this one. But I didn't like that aspect of I'm just assuming, I have to assume that he's just following a random people here. And when he carved the grave, uh, that word sister in, he wanted to go back and retrieve Judith to take her home. Like, that's why he grabbed the gravestone. Right. So, but because of that, I still like it. But I think that there are some elements that John Carpenter does drop the ball in, right? Some of the dialogue doesn't work. I really hated the the girl's dialogue when they're walking home from school and their conversations about boyfriends and stuff. Surprisingly, I found myself surprised that in Rob Zombie's version, I bought those relationships and that, that dialogue a bit better. I felt that these were girls, maybe because it's more modern and more recent, I can picture girls talking this way. It's not like it's radically different in terms of the subject matter. It's just, I liked the writing a little. Surprisingly, I liked the writing more in Rob Zombie's version. So there are some aspects of John Carpenter's that I do not like. Overall, I still love the movie, recommend it, but look, I'll wait for the comparison between this one and Rob Zombie's after we get through Rob Zombie's. So uh, how about I hit you with some zombie trivia? I only got two points, very quick. So uh, we'll get into this movie. So like the first one, this one did cost more, obviously, because modern times, things are more expensive to do, even though it's a very small budget. It costs 15 million to make. But and it made eighty million worldwide just theatrically. So obviously a lot more on polio and stuff like that. So so that's still again a very healthy profit for a movie that is a remake. And people thought that the, you you cannot remake this movie. It cannot be done. And then one of the friends who's the sheriff's daughter, the brunette. I forget her name in, in movie. But do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. She is played by the actress Danielle Harris and. Obviously, you will not know this, but in the sequels, as I mentioned, Michael Myers starts chasing his niece. She, when she was younger, plays the niece in all those sequels. Oh, really? Yeah, so she grew up, and then she starred in this movie. So Rob Zombie brought her back as a, to star in this role. Oh, right on. Yeah. Cool. Um, so just a little fun trivia fact for you. So let's not talk about the generics of the beginning. The, the drastic differences here with Rob Zombie's Halloween is the or the first act i almost think it's the first half of the movie because it's so long is michael myers origins they're painting him to be coming from a fucked up family 
He has a loser stepdad. Obviously, there's domestic issues there. He has problems at school. He's picked on. And he's starting to give warning signs that he's mutilating animals. He's lashing out. And this is the formulation of a psychopath yeah. or a sociopath. So that's the difference here. What did you think of these scenes? I just want to know generically, did you like the first half of this movie? And it's funny because this is going to be your, you never had no exposure to Halloween. And this is your first exposure. What did you think? Yeah. The scenes with the family, I don't know. I mean, I understood what he was going for here mm. with the uh, giving us a bit more backstory as to the you know influence into the into the character of michael myers but honestly i think it's more effective for the movie if he's just fucking crazy you know we see in, in john carpenter the dude's just fucked up and he's a bad dude he's the villain and that's it i prefer that okay so i just want to make one point here so i agree in the sense that if when you're going with a supernatural way of doing it, like an unstoppable force, I like that aspect a bit more than the realistic take. Because it's a bit more scary, right? There's more sense of dread, as you mentioned. Yeah. But I actually loved the beginning of this movie. I was, I went to see this in the theater with some acquaintances that you know because we were such Halloween fans when we were young. We had to see the remake. We were blown away by the first half of this movie because we were surprised he went in this direction. I thought it was a really fresh take and a realistic take. Like he's trying to, what Zombie was doing here was trying to paint the portrait of for the formulation of a psychopath. Now, obviously those connections in the brain, they're not as simplistic as a guy who comes from a shit family, is bullied, but at least it's a fresh take. I mean, obviously it there's is. more to it than that. And, and I liked it. Okay, so I, I hear what you're saying. I think it was very effective in creating so hard to explain here it's very it was effective in creating this character the problem for me is that i don't know that i wanted that because mm -hmm. i think that impacts my enjoyment of the rest of the movie really yeah i am extraordinarily disturbed by what is happening in the first act of this movie and yes. i think that that's by design like, it is by design 100 yeah. percent by design i think i think zombie did a great job yeah it's shocking to say and that's yeah. this is one of the things this is why I didn't want to just pick Halloween because it's Halloween. I actually found this topic. I was shocked as the next person when I actually saw that Zombie did a good job here. Yeah. I thought it was going to be absolute shit. And then and, and the, um, we could talk about the rest of the movie. I mean, the rest of the movie has its problems. But I loved the first act here. I was so invested. I was at the edge of my seat. I got lost in all of it. And he did a good job, even though it's disturbing. Like, I was uncomfortable. Like, the fighting yeah. between the family, the way the stepdad treats the kids. But it's painting a realistic picture. Like, we cannot pretend that this kind of vulgarity does not happen. And this abuse yeah. does not happen in reality. It does. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And you're totally right. I, he did an excellent job portraying the reality here. And I think, you know, not speaking for anybody else, but for me, I bought it. But for me, that's not yeah. a good thing because... Now I'm sitting here watching and I'm like, I'm unsettled and I'm not feeling like this is a fun ride for me. I'm like, fuck, this is some fucked up shit and oh, I don't know what to do with it. I understand. So it's interesting. Yeah. That's why it's interesting. I wanted to see how you would react if you watched yeah. this first versus John Carpenter's first. Maybe you would have more appreciation if you watched Carpenter's first and then you saw this. Well, maybe so. But I was almost... When I watched the John Carpenter original, I was almost relieved 
that I could just sit and enjoy the movie as opposed to sit there and be like, fuck, this is some fucked up shit. I didn't feel like that watching the original. You know, mm-hmm. I, I could enjoy it for, the, like, as I've said, the campfire story. I don't want to say it was fun because it's never fun to, like, watch people get murdered with a knife. But, you know, it was creepy. It was enjoyable. You can kind of compartmentalize it. But this was so real. I was right. so unsettled at the start. I'm like, ah, oh, this is some fucked up shit. And like Malcolm McDowell can class up any joint, and he would just oh, he, and he was it, he did, and I want to get into that. Like he he was great as Doctor oh, Loomis. Great. He was yeah, great. I mean, I want to point out a little take to you. I'm sure it's in the back of your mind if you didn't realize it, but since the Shatner mask is the source, <laughs> so McDowell again killed him again. <laughs> well, actually, tried right. to. I think Shatner finally got his revenge. Yeah, he did. <laughs> I was expecting him to say, you know, times. <laughs> Fuck you, Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> you can burn in the edge of a, a knife. Oh, but he does a great job. Oh, and, he was fantastic. Here. He was yeah. fantastic. And and this is why part of me Levy is is not just because of him. When they were in the in the sanitarium, he's trying to reach out to Michael. I loved the relationship between Michael and his mom, between Loomis and the mom, between Loomis and Michael. These scenes were great, and it was well written, and I believed in those relationships. Yeah, I was surprised. It, yeah, it, it worked. You're you're right. The, these relationships work very well. Malcolm McDowell certainly helps it along. The the kid plays it very well, very creepy. You know, the mom's great. I think the the relationships here are anchored with Malcolm McDowell's performance here. I would agree, but I also did. I do want to point out, and I can't believe I'm saying this. This is Rob Zombie's wife. And he threw her in here. Sherry Moon Zombie is the mom. She did a she, good job. She did a good job. And I actually bought her pain before she committed suicide. Yeah, I uh, did too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I was quite surprised. Like, this, even in any horror movie, you experience anything. And this is coming from Rob Zombie. And this is Rob Zombie's wife. Like, what the fuck? I'm buying this? And oh, I bought it. Dude, if you're married... You're married to a dude named Rob Zombie. You understand pathos. You just have yourself <laughs> on the screen. Yeah. And it's it's going to work. It does. And it does. And you're right. Yeah. Maybe a little too well, in fact, little, for me. Maybe for you. But I, actually, now I wanted to also talk about some of the creepy, creepy factor here. Because before, it's all disturbing. You see him, you know, beat the kid to death. You see him mutilate animals. And they talk about all that stuff. And you see the abuse of the house. And he kills his stepdad, which is very grotesque and brutal. And all that stuff. And same thing with his sister, Judith. But in the hospital, when he starts making those masks, and you see the tapes that Malcolm McDowell's notes and his tapes on Michael in black and white. I love those scenes where he just kind of seems to be getting more disturbed, more pushed back into that evil incarnation that's going to be the adult Michael. It's going to be the serial killer. Yeah. Um, but I love those scenes where he's just getting different masks. And I love the conversation where he's saying, you know, black is not a color. It's the absence of color. So it's the absence. Yeah. These are like signs that he has the absence. He's starting to lose his soul like this kid. He's starting to lose himself even more. And I love those scenes. I just thought it was brilliantly done. As you said, it's unsettling watching this trans- transpire. And, and I just I just loved it. What I also like to end this act, I love this whole scene where he kills the nurse. As stupid as it is, like, why would they leave a metal knife, a metal fork with yeah. him? You saw it coming. But I yeah. loved how the alarm went off and all you hear is the alarm. Yeah. And this whole scene and the mom and Loomis goes back and they're seeing him saying, what happened? What happened? But you can't hear him. Yeah. And you see, and then you see Michael is just gone and you see his eyes. 
and and you see the mom just lose it and she's so scared and she's so lost and all you hear is that alarm and there's no dialogue brilliant scene in my opinion what did you think yeah, I thought this was very, very effective for sure. A uh, very interesting use of absence of sound here. And I I like it when filmmakers kind of go there where, you know, less is more. So, yeah, it, it worked. I was, I keep going back to the same word. I was unsettled in the right way. I mean, they, for me, this scene accomplished what it was trying to. I was, I was freaked out. It was unsettling. And again, I, I, I love that use of, non-sound and sound in that way it was very good yeah and then another great use of sound and it's tragic and heartbreaking mm -hmm. is when the mom kills herself and there's yeah. no music but you all you hear is the baby cry yeah and you know yeah. and you feel for that family and it's again such a realistic and poignant scene i couldn't believe what i was watching when i first watched this and that's the reason i you know and i'm proud to say i actually own this film i have both um I enjoy watching this movie from time to time. It's been so long since I've seen it, like years. So again, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the first act here. So now again, we're, we're going to be fast forwarding again, 15 years, like in the first movie. And damn, Michael Myers is a beast. You thought he was a yeah. big guy in the, in the other one. This guy is a human wrecking ball. Yeah, he's a big mofo for sure. <laughs> yeah, like this is the yeah. difference here. So what Zombie's going for is a realistic take, I guess. Like, if you want to see him have some brute strength, he found the biggest motherfucker on the planet to portray Michael Myers. Yeah, he did. This guy's hands could break my, you know, my couch in half. Like, seriously. I pretty much believe that the guy could wrap his fist around my face and squish my brains out <laughs> without really worrying about it too much. You know? Yeah, it's going to be like that guy in Game of Thrones, like the mountain. You know? Yeah, he's the mountain. Yeah. yeah, he could eat a sandwich in one hand and disembowel me with the other. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So we find now here's again the difference. We see Michael Myers. He's still he's a grown up. He's in the sanitarium. But whereas in John Carpenter's version, where as Loomis arrives, he escaped. Here we see how Michael Myers actually escapes. So yeah. what did you think of these scenes? Even with the surprise guest spot of Machete. <laughs> yeah, I love Danny Trejo. Yeah, and, uh, Danny Trejo. <laughs> unfortunate death by television to the skull. Did you love the fact that he goes, I'm three, three months to retirement? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you knew he was fucked. I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> yeah, he got, I knew that. As soon as I, as soon as I saw Danny Trejo in there, I'm like, he's fucking dead. Yep. It's not Machete Don't Text. It's Machete, oh, machete. <laughs> machete Don't Live. <laughs> machete uh, Don't Watch TV. Oh, fuck. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So what did you think of all this escape? Well, I mean, part of it obviously was the parallels. Like, the sanitarium dudes are the they're, the they're the bullies from his childhood so that's the parallel there yeah i was disappointed that you know danny trejo got fucked up there but it made sense i did some of the the sequence of events didn't make a whole lot of sense but um i don't know man i was unsettled by this whole thing here i mean i, I mean like yeah like with them raping the girl in his well, room that, and, I mean, yeah, and, that, and the violence the violence and it's very graphic then that's rob zombie He's it done our, he's done other horror movies. Yeah. He's more graphic. He's more yeah. into the gore, into the violence. But I wasn't a big fan of the escape scenes here. I loved the first act. The second act here is it, it doesn't do much for me, like you're saying. Yeah. Except I just get to have fun with you know Machete Don't Live. So you know Machete, machete Don't Live. <laughs> yeah. Machete Don't Live. <laughs> machete Don't Do Anything Other Than Fucking Die. Right here. Yeah, pretty much. Was I was very unsettled here. Oh, man, I wasn't settled here. 
this was tough for me to like watch a lot of this was t- out of curiosity what was tough for you to watch because it wasn't like it was overly gory no, here it's the it's the realism it's the realism okay so then he goes back to Haddonfield, and one one thing I this is a difference here. So in the John Carpenter m- version, and this is what Zombie he he specifically said he wanted to do. One of the first thoughts he did is he wanted to make the mask personal, which is why it's something he used when he was killed his sister is the yep. boy boyfriend's mask, and he hid it. So he comes back here and he actually retrieves it. He, he like boarded it up before his mom came home after killing his sister yeah. boarded up the knife boarded that because it's a personal item it's linked to him and that's what zombie one of zombies first thoughts in this movie when he wanted to say i wanted to make something different he wanted to make the mask and the costume part of more of his identity because in the in the carpenter version he just went and got a robbed a store and picked right picked was, that mask yeah. and it wasn't even on scene so what did you think of that? Do you like that idea from zombie where he wanted to make it a personal item like as part of his identity? No, I didn't like it because it's a little on the nose. So he took the mask from the boyfriend, and then he ordered it up. Eh, doesn't make a lot of sense. I think it's fine to say that he just wants to wear a mask because you know what he says in the in the asylum. There is he, you know, he says, "I like the mask because it hides my face. It hides my ugliness." Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter which mask that he's wearing. It matters that he's wearing a mask. The fact that the boyfriend wore a mask is enough, I think, for me. So that it's the same one isn't necessary, I don't think. That's interesting. In the end, because he also was wearing other masks in the sanitarium when he was young and old to to Mm -hmm. hide himself. So in the end, I guess it didn't matter. But I still like that it meant something to him because it was like his first real kill. So he identified with that and he wanted to go back to it. And, And I think, I mean, I'm no expert in terms of psychology or serial killers but i think that there's some kind i i could see a killer just using some common sense and what i know of the subject i could see a killer attach himself to that after his first kill and that would mean something to yeah i no, i could see that it he would but would he have the foresight to hide it under the floorboards of the attic no but i don't Uh, think he meant to say that i'm going to come back in 15 years and get it i think he killed his sister his parent his mom and mom wasn't home he knew he'd get into trouble, so he hid hid the mask and the knife away, and, oh. and then he got yeah. got arrested. So I don't think that was intentional. I think he just meant to hide it, and then he went back and looked, and oh, there it was still all these years. Because obviously no one would want to live in the Myers house after the, of those murders. Yeah. So I buy that. Uh, I can uh, buy it. I'm it. not trying to convince you. I'm just saying that's my, my take. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, okay, so now what's happening here after he gets the mask? Now he is – the movie plays itself – very similarly with differences in tone to the John Carpenter Halloween. You know, he's chasing Lori, like Lori even dropping the mail off at the mail slot for the, her dad and the real estate and all these things. And then he's stalking her. Uh, the only, the one thing I wanted to ask you though is in the other movie, because I was playing up the supernatural element, I can see how Michael knows who his sister is. How does yeah. he know her here? If it's more of a realistic take. Like, because obviously what uh, Malcolm McDowell's Loomis and the sheriff, the sheriff even says it here, because this is all revealed in this movie now in Zombies, is that Michael went back for his little sister. Yeah. So how does he know who his little sister is? And where is she? Yeah, good question. I guess there's a couple of explanations you could go with here. Maybe he didn't know, and he's going back to the same place, and it's a coincidence. You know, the, the internet exists. Maybe that's not enough, but yeah, I, I didn't really think about it that too much, but yeah, it doesn't make it. I guess it doesn't make a whole lot of sense here, but I don't know. I'm, 
<laughs> you're struggling with this movie, man. I'm What's going on? <laughs> I, no, but I'm struggling with the whole movie. Like I'm going with it, but I don't want to go with it. If that makes any sense. Like at this point, I'm like, fuck, I am disturbed right now, but I feel like I'm supposed to be disturbed by watching it. So I'm, I'm kind of going with it. Right. But you, you bring up a good point. There is how does he know that this is his sister? Because right. he doesn't feel supernatural right now. No. And I don't think he ever does in this movie. No. But we can get into that later. I, I did miss one point. He gets his coveralls from the Black Wolverine. So I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the name of my new metal band. <laughs> Black Wolverine. Actually, you know what? That's a great uh, cologne name. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it's a good cologne. <laughs> Black Wolverine. Okay, so now we're getting into Halloween night. So again, just like the other ones. Lori's babysitting, friend across the street's babysitting, Michael's followed them, friend's having sex with her boyfriend. He kills the same boyfriend in the same way by impaling him against the wall. I bought this scene a bit more because this guy's a bit more of a beast. Even though I still have a hard time believing that Butcher Knife would hold the guy up. Um, yeah, it's not. But at least the guy died, got stabbed in the heart, and died right away. So I bought those aspects slightly more than the John Carpenter. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I, I bought the fact that he died right away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Knife's not holding him up. Then you have the classic ghost scene that obviously Rob Zombie remade on purpose. What did you think of this this scene? Because versus the other one, because in this uh, one it's a bit more vulgar, a lot more nudity. What was your take here? Okay, so this take felt a little more realistic to me, but I was left wondering what's the deal <clears throat> with murdering teens that are having sex? Like, what's okay? What's so set here. That, that's a good thing. And this is um, another influence of this movie is the idea of killers going after. And it's not just in Halloween. It's in Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street. It's, oh, in, it's, in, it's, it's, yeah. it's in Friday the 13th. Yeah. About what is the obsession? Obviously, for the audience and the filmmakers, they are aiming at that crowd for people who are younger generation or pre-teens who are having premarital sex. It's targeted for them so they can relate to these people. And then also for the, the male audience to give you some female nudity. So that, for, for young boys, that, that's par, also part of their, even though they'll never admit it, that's part of their audience as well. So that's the reason why. But in terms of the, the theme of the movie, good question. Critics bring that up too. Like, what is the obsession in horror movies? What, why is that a trope? Why is that a stereotype? Is it a possibility that from Michael Myers himself, he saw his his sister have premarital sex, killed the boyfriend, killed his sister. So maybe he's going after people who do that. But in terms of a generic theme, is it about these bad guys who are insecure about their own lives? I mean, you can look at it from their way. So they're going after, they can't forge relationships with the opposite sex. So they're going after couples who have that kind of relationship. Or is it more of, if we go back to the supernatural element, is it more of a, even though it's an evil soul, it, it's a pure soul going after impurities. I don't know. Well, well, I mean, what is it supposed to be? I mean, he's the boogeyman, right? Yeah. He's punishing. He's, is he? Is he punishing? Well, that's the question. Yeah. Is the are these impure souls or the teenagers having sex? Are they being punished by the devil? I mean, I don't think that's a motive for any of the serial killers. Well, I, I think I, I think it's a motive for Michael Myers in, in this version. Because his sister was having sex, killed the boyfriend, killed the sister. So now that's ingrained in his psyche. So yeah, I can see him wanting to kill these these two people here. Well, yeah. Is there something more here with the connection between 
sex and violence and sex and death. I mean, oddly enough, I was brought back to the scene in the sci-fi classic Demolition Man with Sylvester Stallone and Sandra Bullock. And she, and there's a scene in there where she says that, you know, her studies of the 20th century, there's a, always a connection between sex and violence. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I think, and, I think there seems to be. Well, what are we saying there? I mean, is this the male dominance over women? Uh, I don't know. Exactly. Um, yeah. What are we, what that, and that's the question I'm asking here is what are we seeing here? Are we seeing the uh, male dominance over, over women and sex? But why does that need to necessarily mean violence? So if that's a thing, is that violent? Does that translate to violence? I think so. Yeah, but, I'm wondering what's yeah. going on here. I'm like, why is this a thing that exists? You know, Rob Zombie didn't invent this. No. This is a thing that goes back Friday the 13th through Nightmare on Elm Street. Through Psycho. Halloween, through Psycho. Uh, the sex and the violence together. What's the fetishism here? It's an odd question, and I didn't have an answer. Very prevalent here for me. And it, yeah, and, and you're oh. right. And, and it is a theme, and it's a theme even in the back of the filmmakers' minds. It could be even unintentional to the it writers, to the directors, because it, it's a sign of male domination over women. And it could even be in terms of a fantasy that they have, a subconscious fantasy. Yeah. It's part of maybe the male, the male genome, the instinct. I mean, these are questions that are psychiatrists and... Mankind probably still don't even, I mean, they still argue these things today, right? Yeah. And write papers about, and there's still no clear answer. So I'm not sure if we're going to solve it on this podcast. But uh, it. It, we're going to solve that shit. <laughs> Saving the world one issue at a time, buddy. <laughs> one movie at a time. Yeah, but I, I hear what you're saying. And these are good discussion points and things to pick up. And I understand why you're slightly unsettled here I, I guess the just talking about rob zombie's version going back to that one it's a bit more more vulgar a bit more brutal than john carpenter's version. you see more nudity you see more violence the deaths are a little bit more brutal and that's just his style that's what he brings to the team likes it or not so i hear that you're unsettled yeah for me the additional brutality and nudity i mean while i always appreciate the female nudity i mean they don't need to see it flash in my face every all the time like he does here but I, i'm going with it but i get why you're slightly unsettled but let's just move on a little bit more so again i talked about how the the sheriff informs loomis about that that's laurie's sister so that's a difference here and just moving on like the rest of the movie still plays out exactly the same like michael kill michael and laurie goes and visits michael scares her pop the bodies pop up michael chases her back to the original house where she's babysitting one thing that's different here is the police you get some a little bit more of earlier police involvement which is which i i appreciated yeah. so it's not a trope where they only show up after the dead guy is dead they yeah. showed up here and michael myers actually kills the two so i i did like that it was refreshing that even though the main sheriff and loomis didn't arrive there you know there was enough ruckus and and problems that caused some police to still come even though michael dealt with them but i, I did enjoy that that, that yeah. they they did show up did you agree I agree. Yeah. yeah. It's it's nice to see good decisions being made at least sometime. Yeah. And so now here's another difference because in this movie it's revealed that Lori is the sister. So now here's where we're starting to slightly deviate. So Michael Myers, instead of trying to just kill her, he kidnaps Lori, succeeds and kidnaps her, takes her to the Myers house in the basement and lies her beside her dead friend who he's thinking is Judith. So again, bringing that back, as I was mentioning before, why he has that stigma of these teens having sex. He's just sees in his mind 
that that was his sister. So he's laid that girl beside Judith's uh, headstone, gravestone, and then brings his baby sister there. And now his family is complete, takes off his mask. What did you think of this? I honestly you... I had trouble making sense of some of this here. I mean, uh, you know. Yeah, because this is more now like an episode of the X-Files. Or, yeah, or some exactly. kind of show like yeah. that where it's like a serial killer show where he's just trying to get his family back together. Right, in, exactly. in, a, in a strange, fucked up way. It's a different take. This is the first intimation that I had. I mean, I, I had the feeling at this point, because how it plays out is I get the impression that he wants to die. Right. He wants Lori to be the one to kill. Really? You uh, got that impression. Interesting. Yeah, I got I got that impression. And I, I found that this, like, he wanted to, obviously he wanted to tell her what their relationship was to each other. Interesting. Okay. And I got the impression because he he, he wasn't going to kill her. He, if he wanted to kill her, she'd be dead. The only reason I'm kind of questioning that is then she stabs him because yeah. he drops a knife, takes off his mask, gives the picture, and he's kind of just sitting there. As you're saying, maybe he wants her to, to kill him. Yeah. But then she stabs him and then he gets upset and goes chases her and then he tries to hurt her. I, Honestly, I'm not sure I really buy that argument. He's a big dude. She's a little girl. If he did not want her to stab him with that knife, she wouldn't have been able to do so. And she she stabbed him. I got the impression here. I wrote it down here. Does he want her to end his suffering? He wants her to be the one. He doesn't um, yeah. to continue. I see where you're coming from. I don't necessarily buy it. I think what he's trying to do is, in his own messed up, fucked up way, his sister is still that pure, innocent child. She hasn't fornicated with anybody, to his knowledge. And in this movie, she hasn't. So it's still a pure, innocent soul to him that he has to protect, and he just wants them to be together. I think that's what... He, he just can't speak anymore. He's just incapable of... Uh, he's just long gone. So he gives the picture and she's just waiting for her to maybe embrace him or take care of him. Yeah. Or he wants I mean, that or he misses that relationship with his mother. So he is going to her. He needs that. That could be. But he's all about. But he knows violence as his. But he doesn't know that. Like, do we know he knows that? Do psychopaths, do we know that psychopaths, as he's talking about self-reflecting and mosquito coast, can he self-reflect? Maybe he cannot. He can't self-analyze himself at all. He might not, you know, but he might not be able to self-analyze. But violence is normal for him. Though. But he took his mask off, so maybe when he does that, he has now separated that personality. Maybe he has a double personality. But again, these are the. This is interesting discussion because this version of Rob Zombie's Halloween, because it's a more realistic take. He he has taken the time to develop the movie to show that this is a psychopath, not a supernatural being. And that is correct. He has done so. This is not a supernatural creature here this is a human being who's a psychopath and or a sociopath he has taken the time to develop that for better or worse right yeah okay so let's let's because we're near the end of the movie let's just finish this off so you get similar action beats towards the end with him still chasing Lori, but you get a little bit more of a slightly more of a chase and then loomis gets a little bit more involved here because he saves her and i even like the uh, the discussion between Loomis and Mike Loomis goes, it's my fault, Michael. It's my yeah. fault. And again, I like these relationships. I still like what Malcolm McDowell brought. It's not just because it's Malcolm McDowell, but the way it was written is that he feels responsible as well, that he couldn't yeah. help him. Yeah. And then Michael even then, like, it's funny. The Michael didn't even care that he was there or he says, oh, it's you're my doctor or you're my friend. That's fine. 
but he actually listens to him and then he hurts. He goes and whether he's dead or not, I don't know. Uh, I can't remember the sequel to this movie. I remember it being shit, but I can't remember if Malcolm McDowell lived. But Michael Myers may have killed him. I'm not sure. I think, no, it showed that he was alive still, wasn't he? I haven't seen the sequel. No, 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 even in this movie. Well, after, he, after uh, he gouges his eyes in a little bit. Yeah, I know he was alive after that. I mean, we don't know ultimately if he lives, but it wasn't definitive that he died. That yeah, it wasn't correct. definitive that he's died. But I, I just loved those scenes. And yeah, then it was good. It was, and here's the weird thing is... Michael tackles Lori. She tries to shoot some of the gun is empty or because it's a, it's a six shooter and the gun's empty in that chamber and Michael tackles her off the balcony and they both fall onto the Yeah. So what did you think of that difference and why was Michael doing? Uh, Or do you think that that was his chance? Like she, he gave her a chance and that's it. Now you're done. I think that one way or another, I thought he wanted to die and he wanted her to be a part of that. So when he took her Maybe. off the balcony there, yeah, I guess uh, I guess he expected her to get killed, but but then he'd go with her. Yeah, like he'd go with her, and she was there when he died. And I think that that's what he wanted is he wanted her to be the one to kill him. Right. Yeah, and because that's well, continue, and then yeah. we can talk about it. Yeah. Okay. So then, yeah, just the movie's pretty much almost done here. So the only difference here is is that in the first one, when Michael goes over, Loomis peers over, he's gone. Boogie Man's still out there. So in this one. She gets up. She's mad. She's, they're both seriously injured. She is seriously injured. She's fucked up, but she manages to crawl on top of him with the gun and she keeps firing blanks. Michael still finally wakes up, grabs her, but then she pulls the trigger. The gun goes off. We are made to assume it shoots him in the face or in the head or in the brain. She drops the gun. Michael's still, and she's just screaming. The movie just cuts to her just ends with her screaming and blood all over her face and in her mouth. And that's the end of the so what did you think of those scenes? Did you think that that was effective? Do you think that that just made yeah. you still unsettled? Or uh, how did you like that ending? Yeah, no, I'm I'm unsettled. Beginning to end, I'm unsettled. I think that confirms what I was saying. Uh, you know, she's uh, turning blanks on the gun. He reaches up, grabs her hand, and he's strong enough. He's a beast. He could turn her away, but he doesn't. I thought he grabbed her hand to steady it, so that for sure she would blow his brains out. Like, she'd be the one to kill him. That's, that's how I interpreted it. The, uh, that's why yeah. I say, like, through the whole thing, he wanted her to, to end his life. Like, his life was torture. Interesting interpretation, because yeah. I, I never... I mean, I'm glad you brought that up, because it's it's something I've never thought about. He said before, though, like, when he was putting on the masks, he does it to hide his ugliness. He hates himself. He, he's trapped in his mind. He's got walls up around his mind. He's trapped in there, and it's dark. And it's empty and it's lonely and it's ugly and he hates it. And he wants her to be the one to release him from that. Hmm. So he, when he grabs her hand and she pulls the trigger, he, he, if he wanted to grab her hand and pull it away, he could have done it. He grabbed her hand and held it there so that she pulled the trigger and it would get him. You know what? I like your interpretation. In fact, I wish the problem I have though, is I don't think that the film showed me enough of that for me to, see how you're getting to those conclusions i like what you're saying i just wish the film showed me that more if that was the case well so what do you think is happening here i think he was going to try and still get her and kill her or do something with her and the gun just went off and she killed him 
because I still think he wanted the family to be. He missed that mother figure. That's the yeah. one solid relationship he had. He had came from an abused family, didn't have a dad, his stepdad was shit. His sister, he didn't have a good relationship with Judith. The only person who kind of had his back was his mom. I think it was too methodical. I mean, so you think that as he's, so she's on top of him with the gun and he's lying there. I just think he came too. I think he, he just came, came too. And then she, the gun just went off. I don't think so there's think any that, more than that. So you don't think that considering the entire movie that, that Rob Zombie was not methodical enough to consider that, that he considered a chance ending? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe that speaks. What does that tell you of the way Rob Zombie made this movie then? That's a well, good thing. I'll tell you this, and I don't know if we're at this point where we need to discuss this. I think that that Rob Zombie made the movie very methodically, and that he did exactly what he wanted to do. And I felt that I felt everything that he wanted to do exactly. All of that being said, not in a state of enjoyment at any second of this movie. I mean, I understand knowing you that you don't enjoy stuff like this. One, this genre is not your forte to begin with. Two, when it comes to realistic violence, I, I know you have you have problems stomaching it. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, so I mean that's that's you. But putting that aside, I still think there's still a lot to take away and enjoy here because I think the writing is solid. I like the first act. I liked the relationships. I even liked the relationships between the girlfriends. I thought they talked. The writing was better there. They had a yeah. better friendship there than in comparison to the. The John Carpenter version, but again, the John Carpenter version wasn't really focused on that too much, and it was a sign of the times, the way they yeah. talked. So, I mean, I can yeah. just relate more to the girls talking this way because I'm more part of this generation. So I understand that. But I loved all the – I even liked the relationship between Lori and her stepmom. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah, how I she was uncomfortable talking about yeah. sex, and I thought the, all realistic scenes, I can yeah. see people talk this way. So yeah, it made sense. You're, you're right. It, it was realistic. Um, yeah, so I, so when you're saying there's nothing to enjoy, I know you're unsettled, but I still think there are other things you can enjoy here because <sighs> I, I know you're unsettled. So you don't enjoy seeing this type of movie, but you have to appreciate those aspects of it. At least I actually really do appreciate a lot of what happened here because I think that everything you've said is, I think is correct. I appreciate the relationships here. Like you said, the dialogue with the, uh, with the girls, very believable. I honestly think that Rob Zombie did a spectacular job here portraying exactly what, mm -hmm. you know, I, I thought he did a fantastic job with making this film in the way that he wanted to make it. Right. And I was unsettled as fuck through right. minute one from this movie to the end. Okay. I'll tell you, this is just me. When I watch a movie, I want to either be entertained or informed. Better if it's both. So like, I understand I, your difficulty here because yeah, it's hard for you be, to un and to be entertained by this. It, and I understand. It was very hard for me entertained by this because I was unsettled the whole time and that's not entertaining for me. And honestly, if you're entertained by this and you enjoy it, you got I think you got to look in the mirror. I, I don't I, enjoy I it. it but I, I, yeah, yeah. But I understand what you're saying. It's not like I'm getting kicks off this kind of violence. No, I'm trying to, not. I'm trying to, see the positives of what the differences are between a revered classic like John Carpenter's Halloween yeah. to something that this rock star, like this this heavy metal and his stuff, right? His music. I'm not saying Rob Zombie as a person is like this. That's just his artistic take of things, right? So he transfers that here. It's very brutal. It's very real. And I understand you're unsettled, but there's still that realism 
and those relationships, there's still something there that I enjoyed just from the relationships. That's when I talk about my enjoyment factor here and my surprise. And that's the reason why I bought it is I was surprised at how somebody for, even if it's you double Rob Zombie or Steven Spielberg or whoever, or Scorsese, whoever you want to name, I was surprised that somebody was able to make something pretty good after what came from John Carpenter's Halloween. Because like what you see today, you get, you see remakes and they're, they've got nothing. They're dead. They're dead remakes. They're shit. And they're insulting. This wasn't insulting to me. No, I, and I, I will absolutely agree with you there. This was not an insulting remake. It was not empty. No, this had a lot to it. You're right. No, you are right. I do agree with you. And I commend Rob Zombie. I mean, who would have thought (laughs) here? Yeah. Who would have thought? No shit. There's a lot of talent. I'll stop you there before you're praising Rob Zombie. I agree with you on this film. Do yourself a favor. Never watch the sequel. Okay. (laughs) Ever. Ever. Because he'll take all those positives and just. All right. I, I, you know what? There wasn't any danger of me watching it before, but now it's reinforced with a bulletproof vest. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I will say before we move on, if I can just say uh, some details in the plot here of the zombie film. So Malcolm McDowell, as uh, the doctor, he gets himself some protection. He buys himself a 357 Magnum, also known as the fucking hand cannon. Yes. yes. And he points this. Okay. I don't know anything about guns. Having shot a gun exactly one time in my life, which you were there for, you do not fire a 357 Magnum with one hand. Well, okay, you you're, do not, you're, you don't. You're, you're now getting don't. you're now getting out of movie world territory here. Okay, but come on. Okay, he bought, but that's a, but they made a point of him buying a three fifty seven, not a Saturday night special. No, but this is a detail I can let slip because now you're talking about movies. Yeah, in We're my opinion, about a realistic take here. Are we okay, not? Okay, but yeah, but it's still now, a movie. he made a point of the realism yeah. in this film. You don't. It's not a one-handed weapon. When you hit a motherfucker with a three fifty-seven round, he's going down. Yeah, I agree with you. In fact, I, I'd even argue that you probably shouldn't, wouldn't even be able to fire it; it'd just fly back and break his nose. Yeah, no, he wouldn't him. have. It, yeah, yeah, he would, yeah, exactly. That's why. Yeah. One shot, he's not hitting shit. Yeah, he's Shoot just breaking his own face with it, with his own hands yeah. and the gun. And if he hit him, I mean, how many times did he hit him in the swimming pool? There, he's done. The only credit I'll give is that is that he never hit anything major. Like he hit his shoulder, hit his other shoulder. He didn't hit a lung. He didn't hit him in the square in the chest. He didn't hit him in the in, in directly in the spine. So I can see how um, a mammoth beast can still be moving. Three fifty seven is making a big hole in your in your person. So even if you don't hit anything yeah. major, it, it, he how many times did he hit him? A three fifty seven. That guy's torso is blown open. That many hits. I know. So, but this guy's also like a beast beyond a beast. So it didn't, it didn't ring true. You right. should have just had a smaller gun. Okay. I agree with you, but I'm not going to sit there. It, it's yeah. It, you question it. It can take some people out of a movie. I've said stuff like this before. So I hear you, but I'm not going to sit here and, you know, fault the movie simply because of that one decision. I think it's just a miss in terms of on script. He said, I need to oh. say, I need the character to go by the most powerful handgun because this guy's a fucking beast, but then it just got lost in making the movie. 
Well, but as you said before, I mean, it would have made more sense if there was more of the supernatural element there, as opposed to him just being a big dude. My question to you is, obviously now I've told you there's a sequel. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of ruined it. But if you can kind of take that piece out of your mind, would you think that he's done? After this? Yeah. He's dead. He looked pretty dead. She had that gun. Even if she didn't hit him in the face, she's hit him in a critical spot. Like, yeah, and, she, and I agree. If there's you. a sequel, where did she shoot him? 100% agree. What happens here is I think Rob Zombie then just caved into the money-making system. This movie made a shit ton of money yeah. on a healthy profit. So away we go again for a sequel. I think he's dead. That's my interpretation too. And that's why I would never watch the sequel ever again. Not only is it shit. I shouldn't have even watched it to begin with. I was just had that curious. I thought he was fucking dead. And I can't remember now what happens, but I think he plays some more of that supernatural element into the next one. Because I think that's his only way he could write himself out of that hole. It would be, yeah. 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 But I don't bring that into here because I don't think that was the original t intention of this film. No, it didn't seem to be. No. No. So based on that then, Jeff, so, you know, we've had a good discussion. Um, do you want to bring up any other points where we kind of sum up our thoughts here? Because we're already at uh, more than two hours, so. I think we covered it. I'm assuming you enjoyed both uh, to an extent. I know you're saying you're unsettled by the second one. I'm going to make a very obvious guess that your preference is the first one. Um, <laughs> so is there anything you can take away from Rob Zombie's film that you appreciate? I know you said he did a good job. But what's your overall take on the movie? Do you think it's a good movie? Do you think people should watch it? Whether you're talking about people who like the genre or don't like the genre. What's your take there? Okay. So just talking about the zombie film here. And actually, um, and I want to add another point. I'm curious as to how you liked this experiment of also watching that first. Okay. We'll start with the experiment. With what, so what we did for our listeners is, uh, because I had never seen Halloween before, Either one, as I watched the remake first and then the original, I thought the experiment was very interesting. I thought that was a good decision on our part. For you, the listener, to listen to the show here, I will say that I got really interesting perspective on the Carpenter film from watching the zombie film first. What I'll say about the Rob Zombie version here is that it was a very effective film in the sense that I think that everything that Rob Zombie tried to do, he did. I was unsettled. I was nervous. I watched this film and I was like, this is, like the situations are awful. The psychological impact on me was, was very strong. And unfortunately, as a result, I did not enjoy this movie. I was not entertained. I mean, I watched this movie and afterwards I was like, I don't, do not understand why people would like this at all. It's not torture porn like some of those movies that are out now, like Hostel and Saw 28, whatever, <laughs> wherever they're at. It's not that. But I did not find anything in the zombie film that I wanted to watch. I appreciated it. I thought it was a skillfully made movie. And I was surprised at how well it was made from, uh, from Rob Zombie. I mean... I think he accomplished exactly what he wanted to. And unfortunately, I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think that's something that is entertainment. Uh, again, as I said before, I want to be entertained and informed about a, 
about something and I was not entertained and I was glad when it was over, but I did appreciate what he did. I mean, I, the imagery was great. I thought the, the direction was good. I thought it was a well, I thought it was well-written. I didn't take anything away from it from a positive perspective. I was glad when it was over. I was in a funk after this man, but I think that's what he was going for. So I got to credit him with that. <laughs> I think you should. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. But I don't want that, man. I don't want that in watching I get, the movie. I, I get you. I'm open to watch anything so long as I can believe in the story and believe in the characters. And uh, I did those things. I believed in the story I, and I believed but, uh, in the characters. Uh, uh, and I just, I just hated it. But hated you, it every moment. So I'm going to hearken back to our first episode. Okay? So I get it. You said the best movies you think that's been made is Saving Private Ryan. But you are unsettled through that whole thing. Yeah. Hard for you to sit through. And I think even though I'm not saying this movie is like Saving Private Ryan or has the skill set of Saving Private Ryan or anything like that, I'm just saying I think that has that kind of effect on you where yeah. it's very hard for you to enjoy because that's just who you are. Well, that's, that's true. I do not enjoy realistic depictions of violence and psychosis and those things. I don't like it. And you know what? I'm glad that I don't like it. Because I think that people shouldn't like realistic depictions of violence. Unrealistic depictions of violence is, is I think, is okay. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, there's excitement, there's action. I can separate myself from that. Oh, I, I hear when you. It's real yeah. when it's real. And when I read stories in the news about, uh, you know, fucked up people who do the fucked up shit that, you know, we kind of see in this movie, I get the same feeling, right? It, I really dislike it. So going back to, what your original question was. I don't have a, I don't remember at all. Are we at the point where we're recommending shit? Is that what we're doing? Well, now? well actually now I just want to go, you go back and you can maybe just quickly touch on John Carpenter's in comparison okay. then. Okay. So if we go to John Carpenter, you know, cause I had watched the zombie version first. So I watched John put in the DVD for John Carpenter's Halloween. And I was like, shit, how am I, how am I going to watch this? This mm -hmm. is going to be a really tough sell for me. And I really enjoyed the Carpenter version. And I think the reason why I enjoyed this versus the zombie version is because, as I said before, the campfire quality of it, it wasn't real to me. So I could enjoy the violence a little bit more, the, the dread, the fear. It felt like I'm listening to that story around the campfire where I want those things yeah it's a know? go it's a more of a ghost story to you it's more of a, it, exactly it's more of a ghost story so it's fun it's a little campier it's obviously campier and i liked it like the music's kind of campy the relationships are a little campy uh, you know there's the dude that's named uh steve todd the guy with that name is a pervert straight up uh, you know this <laughs> he's a more of a pervert than michael myers i mean there's things in the uh, john carpenter can craft it more that it's more palatable to me it, it fits in the space of the horror slasher movie like if you were to watch nightmare on elm street for example i enjoy the nightmare on elm street movies it's not real yeah. it's campy it's goofy it's sarcastic so it doesn't feel to me like real people are getting knifed in the face and that's I why i can feel like it's more enjoyable to me whereas a zombie movie he wanted me to feel like somebody real is getting knifed in the face and i felt it so he accomplished that but that's mm -hmm. not something i want i understand so I'll, I'll get into into my take so again john carpenter's halloween is definitely a classic for me 
It's a um, movie. I have very fond memories of it. The elements that I really enjoy about John Carpenter's Halloween are like the strengths and the similarities and the way it's filmed are in terms of the aspect that I talked about of Jaws where you're seeing a slow build to the revelation of this monster. It, you get glimpses and you get a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and you get these teases as he's stalking. It's very effective. It's good for the tension building and I enjoyed all of that. I, I also enjoyed aspects of John Carpenter's direction not all. I think he dropped the ball in a lot of scenes. The dialogue between the girls, the, the relationships just weren't there. I also really didn't feel that I had too much of a relationship between Loomis and Michael. It was just, as you said, a very simplistic tale, a ghost story. So those relationships weren't really part of the focus. What I did enjoy, though, is the idea that there's this supernatural, unstoppable force that's just out there to cleanse the streets or cleanse these people. As I said, that concept of Sawin, like, or, or I don't know what's the pronunciation. I think that's the right way to pronounce it or close to it, where the souls are coming out on this night, which is Halloween. They're coming back from the other world and they're going to take the souls on this evening. Again, as you said, that's part of that campfire ghost story element. I enjoyed all this stuff. I enjoyed the fact that he is really referred to as the shape, and I liked some of the lighting. I liked how he was coming out of the darkness and grabbing people. But I also felt that John Carpenter really didn't up the scare level as much as he could have. And I really did not like the first half of the movie. Whereas in, I'll go now to transition to Rob Zombie's Halloween, is I really, really enjoyed the first half of that movie. I enjoyed seeing, it was refreshing to see a different take instead of just a copycat remake. And I enjoyed the relationships that he had with his mom, with Loomis, Michael Myers, even though there's not much of a relationship there, but I enjoyed those aspects of it. So I know you were saying, how can someone enjoy such a vulgar take? I'm not really enjoying the vulgarity aspect of the movie. The second half of the movie, when Michael is really stalking Laurie, I did not enjoy those aspects as much as John Carpenter's version. I felt that the scares were a little bit better and a little bit more modern. So in those aspects, like the jump scares, I, I liked that. It was just a slightly more modernized and I liked some of the filming. But yeah, I, I would say that he just went a little too far on the brutality to make it unsettling. It's not easy to see all the time. So it's tough. It's a tough call between each movie. So now I guess the question I'll just, just show, uh, let you answer first is, which do you recommend? Which ones do you recommend? Do you recommend both? Do you recommend only one of them? And what are the pros and cons to each? Do audiences today, can they still watch this movie? Is any of these a rare gem? Does John Carpenter's Halloween deserve that recognition of its influence on the genre? Oh, man. Does John Carpenter's version deserve the recognition on the influence of the genre yes i think absolutely it does in the context of what we're doing here is it a rare antiquity i'm gonna say i'm gonna say yes on the john carpenter version i think it's a rare antiquity i think go watch it it's got some cool stuff going on i think it's enjoyable it's entertaining and there's again there's lots going on here that influences the genre if you are a fan of the genre, you need to go see it. If you're not a fan of the genre, 
again, I think you need to to watch it just to see, you know, what's happening here. Uh, for the Rob Zombie version, I got to say no. I think it's a skillfully made film. I, I really do. I was very impressed with it. But uh, if you're a fan of the genre, is it going to be something you want to watch? I don't know. I, I mean, I think you should go and watch movies that are more entertaining. Like, go watch the early Friday the 13th movies and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and the and the Halloween movies and that stuff. This shit will fuck up your brain. It's disturbing. I can't recommend something that is this disturbing. You shouldn't want to, you shouldn't be entertained by stuff like this. You really shouldn't. If you find it interesting, uh, maybe that's a different story. Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm, t- I'm torn on this one because I think I it was well made. Mm-hmm. I really do think it was well made. And I'm not saying it was a bad movie from a technical standpoint. But, I mean, if you're sitting there watching this with a smile on your face going, this is fucking great. Oh, man. I, I don't know. Like I said, you got to look in the mirror. I really do. I really <laughs> think you got to. <laughs> yeah, if you're getting enjoyment and kicks out of it, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I'll give you give you my take. Yeah, um, same thing with John Carpenter's. I, I think it's a little bit more gets a little bit more praise than it deserves. I think the second half of the film of that film, especially I'd say even the last act, is where it really hits all the bells and whistles. I think it really drops the ball in the first half of the movie. It's not very entertaining. It's very slow. I know it's a slow build, and I appreciated aspects of that slow build, but it's just moves too slowly, wasn't scary enough, and it is has dated. The dialogue and relationships, and some of his directing are, is not refined well enough for me to give it the recommendation that many other people do. However, I still do recommend it. Is it a rare antiquity? Oh, that's a tough one. I will say yes, solely based on the fact that I enjoyed the supernatural element and that ending is so ingrained in pop culture. For that, I will give it, but it's a very, very... Like, it's such a small recommend in terms of it being a rare antiquity, because if it wasn't for that ending, I would say no. It's over. It would be overrated. But I realize it's influence on the genre as well. Will modern audiences today like it? It's going to be a tough sell, because I don't know if they're going to get through the first half of the movie. There's just not a lot there. And the fact that there's no relationship building there, the relationships aren't real, they're forced, they're fake, the dialogue is bad, that in itself is going to lose a lot of people today. Whereas in the Rob Zombie version, I think the relationships and dialogue will keep people at least somewhat interested to get through the movie. Now, I agree, the movie is brutal and unsettling. Is it a rare antiquity? No. Do I give it a recommendation? Yes. I think that there's still enough to like here and it's so refreshing. And the reason why is tend to, as we talked briefly touched on in today's remakes, things are copied without a different, not enough of an interpretation deep down, like those layers. I can do a remake and maybe just twist this one event. Like this person will do this and this person will do this differently slightly, but they're going to be almost in the same scene. I'm not talking about those kind of differences. I'm talking about, Instead of it being a supernatural being, he's a realistic being, he's a psychopath. And they went back and looked at the development and the formation of a psychopath. And I think they did that well. And the relationships were enough there for me to say it's worth a watch, for sure. 
That's my opinion. I'm not sure if you were coughing or laughing at me. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> that was a laugh, but I, I was asking it as a cough because I didn't want to offend you. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to go off the board here like you kind of did with Superman. I think on this latest viewing, I enjoyed, even though I'm not going to say it's a rare antiquity, I'm going to say I enjoyed Rob Zombie's more than John Carpenter's. Really? Yeah. I'm very surprised to hear you say that. Simply, be simply because, as I said, I agree with you. It's I'm not a fan of the brutality, especially in today's world in Hollywood, where you can take an original source, beloved material, remake it, and do something that works. That's so different that it's not a slap in the face and insulting yeah. to me. Yeah. And from yeah. that aspect, I am giving it it has my full support. I, I can't believe that it pulled it off and it did pull it off. It's like having remaking Jaws and having the shark come out of the water and going to dinner with Quint and they're having a conversation <laughs> <laughs> and it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or Quint eats the shark. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger steak. Yeah. And, the and they pulled wine. it off. We're need a bigger bottle of wine. Yeah. And they so, pulled it off. I agree that it was a very... As far as remakes go, you're right. I mean, it it didn't piss on the source material. It it really built on it, and it and it stands on its own. Yeah. So I, I agree with you there. I just wanted to be clear that I'm giving saying John Carpenter's is a rare antiquity for mainly because of its influence as well as that supernatural element and that ending yeah. is just so people have to see this movie. So it's a rare antiquity, but I think there's a difference in terms of what I like more right now. I'm yep. giving the recommendation more for Rob Zombies because I think there's – it's hard to say the word there's more to like there because, as you said, you're not really going to enjoy watching a sick individual do what he does in that those brutal ways. Yeah. But I like the relationships. I like the first half. In the second half, while it's not as effective as the second half of John Carpenter's, it's still – in terms of the slasher horror element, there's still enough there to take away from. Those tropes are still there. I just felt, oh, as a whole, it's better than John Carpenter's, but the strengths of John Carpenter's are better than this movie. So it's yeah, really hard for me to explain. You know what? I think I get it because, I, I mean, I like the distinction that you make. You referenced our uh, Superman comparison where i said i like superman returns that was my number one but it was my current enjoyment of the film versus everything else not so much the, you know this at this point the rob zombie version currently you enjoyed it more so yeah i i, I get the distinction that you're making there and i think that, i think that's important for for people to understand you can like a movie that's maybe not necessarily as good as another, but you like it more, right? Yeah. And I, I think that's important to say. So I'm yeah. with you. Yeah. All right. So that, that does it. I guess the, the one last question I have is, are you glad you did this episode? Yeah, I, I'm glad I did this episode. There was a lot to talk about here, which is the whole point. You know, yeah. we got to have stuff to talk about. So, I, yeah, I, I was happy to, uh, to get into this here. I, I was happy to see two movies that I'd never seen before. You know, the zombie film, as I may have intimated before, you know, fucked up my shit a little bit. But, you know, you got to push your boundaries. You got to be unsettled. And I believe that for our listeners here, if you're used to watching just the shit that you're used to watching, 
expand your boundaries a little bit so you understand what's going on out there. And I'm happy that I was able to do that here. And I was happy to watch the Carpenter version. I'm a Car- I'm a John Carpenter fan. I love the guy. Glad to see a movie that I hadn't seen before of his. So, so that, that's yeah. good. So as a Carpenter movie, are you you feel it lived up to those standards? I did. Yeah. So that does it for today's episode, our episode eight, our take on Halloween and Rob Zombie's Halloween remake. So Jeff, do you care to enlighten us what we have in store next? Now, it's not your pick for an ambiguous movie, but what we're doing next episode. Yeah, so what we're doing for our next episode, of a, we're doing a podcast of Rare Antiquities Special Edition, where we edit in Harry shooting first. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as long as it's shooting you and that works, that's great. Yeah, it and, and it, it actually is. makes it connect. No, no, connects. but you shooting first and missing. Oh, And oh, then okay. me blasting you straight up in the face. Uh, and, I see. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what we're doing... Our next episode is our take on the latest James Bond film, Spectre. And we will have a very special guest, Andrew, who is an old enemy. I mean, an old friend of ours. And uh, we will be going through that one. That'll All right. Good. Looking forward to that one. So uh, always good to have a scare, Jeff. So I'll see you, see you on the other side, I guess. Yeah, it's always good to have a scare, and I always have one when I talk to you. So. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, take it easy.